thank you for downloading or streaming this episode of Band Biographies. You can find more episodes at bandbiographies.com. That's B-A-N-N-E-D biographies.com. If you enjoy it, why not leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you use to listen to your podcasts? Apparently, it helps get the show up the charts so more people can see it, to download it, and then to leave further five-star reviews. Another way you can help is by telling as many friends as possible to give it a download. Please do reach out on Twitter at BandBiogs, on Instagram at BandBiographies, search on Facebook for BandBiographies, or by emailing bandbiographies at gmail.com. But most of all, enjoy. Graffiti culture began in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania and New York cities in the 1960s, a few years after the death of legendary jazz musician Charlie Parker in 1955. Parker was also known as Yardbird, or simply Bird, and in the years after his death, the words Bird Lives appeared on buildings and walls around the cities. But in the early 1970s, New York became the epicentre of a brand new countercultural artistic movement. Early graffiti taggers would add their street number with their nickname to create their own unique tag. These would be written either in bubble writing or a more intricate font known as wild style, a term coined by Tracy168 who was one of the earliest innovators, or indeed perpetrators, who was at the head of a 500-strong crew including taggers like Blade, Cope2, T-Kid170, Cap, Juice177, Dan Plasma, Tacky183, Dondi, Lady Pink, Zephyr, Julio204, Stay High149 and Phase 2. They would bomb a subway train with their work, and the train would take it throughout the city, displaying their work everywhere it went. Over time, the scene became more competitive, with the illustrations of scenery and cartoon characters being added to tags. Fab Five Freddy, Fred Braithwaite, was one of the most notorious graffiti figures of that era. He is often credited with helping to spread the influence of graffiti and rap music beyond its early foundations in the Bronx, and making links in the mostly white downtown art and music scenes. In the mid-1970s, word was spreading across the Atlantic about the burgeoning movement in New York, though the most famous early example of music and graffiti culture colliding in London came with the spray-painted words Clapton is God appearing on a wall at the Islington Underground tube station in the autumn of 1967, clearly written by an ardent Eric Clapton fan. In the mid-1970s, teenagers Lee Thompson and Michael Barson had a fleeting moment of notoriety in the press. Inspired by an article they'd seen in a Sunday paper, they had begun tagging their nicknames Kicks and Mr B around North London, out of boredom often in the company of two other friends who called themselves Cat and Columbo. Thompson said in a Guardian article written in 2015 by Alexis Patridis 
that they would usually confine their activities to dilapidated buildings, walls made of corrugated iron, smashed up cars, and nothing on people's property. But, he admits, they didn't always stick to their own rules. Once they sprayed their names on a garage door, and he said a few weeks later George Melly, a prominent jazz and blues singer, critic and lecturer, wrote a piece in The Guardian all the time saying, I came out of my garage recently to find that people had sprayed graffiti on it. If I ever catch that Mr B, Kicks and Columbo, I'm going to kick their asses." So that was our claim to fame, said Thompson. Not long afterwards, the teenagers found that photographs of their tags sprayed onto a wrecked car and a wall in Kentish Town had appeared in a book by Mark Baker called The Writing on the Wall, published in 1981. In 1976, in their late teens, Barson and Thompson formed a band called the North London Invaders. Barson had two older brothers, Danny and Ben, who were musically inclined. Between them, the three brothers owned a piano and a guitar amp, so Barson essentially became the band's leader. In fact, Danny Barson was a member of the pub rock band Bazooka Joe, who gave the Sex Pistols their first ever gig supporting them, and whose members, John Ellis and Stuart Goddard, would respectively go on to have success in The Vibrators and as Adam Ant. You can hear more on them in the Sex Pistols, Adam and the Ants, and Adam Ant episodes of Band Biographies. The first thing that struck me was Mike Barson, who was very, very determined. He was very single-minded about the fact that he said to me, when I went to that very first rehearsal, we're going to make records, and there didn't seem to be any argument about that, you know. It was sort of couldn't miss, because we had a couple of elements which, um, which nobody had at that time. One was that we were um, we were under 65, and in that period, uh, nearly every band, there were I think there was a dinosaur period they called it, and um, we were just a bunch of kids, you know. So I thought that's one of our cards in our hand that we had. Michael Barson adopted the nickname Monsieur Barso and played keyboards and sang. Thompson used his tag name Kicks and played lead saxophone and also sang. They roped in their friends Chris Chrissy Boy Foreman who was the son of a folk musician and worked as a gardener for Camden Council with Thompson on lead guitar, John Hasler on drums and Cathal Smythe, better known as Chaz Smash, on bass guitar. Later in the year, they were joined by lead vocalist Dikran Chilane. Chilane, born John Dikran Utterjan in London in 1956, holds UK and US citizenship and in his early years moved from London to the Middle East the Caribbean and the US, as his father's medical career saw him in high demand. In 1976, he'd moved back to London to pursue a career in the performing arts and assumed the stage name Dikran Chilane, which he registered with equity. After just one gig, at a party at their friend Simon Birdsell's house, where they played songs including Elvis Presley's Jailhouse Rock, Carol King's It's Too Late, and The Temptations' Just My Imagination, Tulane decided acting was where his passion really lay, and by the 1980s he was working in theatre and television, at times touring in Paris, Croatia, Greece, and the United States. He eventually moved to New York to work in theatre, film and TV there. He continues to act on the screen and stage, as well as lending his voice to audiobooks. His film credits include roles in the films G.I. Joe Retaliation, Looper and Geostorm, and the TV shows Sleepy Hollow, Constantine, Blue Bloods, The Blacklist, The Punisher and The Walking Dead. 
After Tulane's departure partway through 1977, Graham McPherson, who had been at that first gig, took over the lead vocals after seeing the band perform in a friend's garden. McPherson was born on the 13th of January 1961 in Hastings. By the time he was three, his father, William, had left and his mother, Edith, raised him on her own. Edith was a jazz singer who performed in pubs and clubs all over the country, so she and young Graham moved around a lot. Later, McPherson talked to Max Bell in a 1984 article called Madness by Madness. We moved to Liverpool, then London. I lived with relations in Wales for a while and came back to London. Because I was an only child, I was pretty insular and stubborn. All the upheaval made me lazy academically, so by the time I got to Quintin Kynaston's school in St John's Wood, I didn't bother much. I stayed on to the sixth form for social security reasons and got two O-levels and a CSE on the way. McPherson was bullied in school. He related the tale to Roy Wilkinson in an article called The History Boys in 2009. Though I'm not Scottish, my name is. So at our school in Finchley Road, I was an ethnic minority. I was called Haggis, or maybe flea-bitten jock cunt. My mum had an encyclopedia of jazz musicians, and one day I stuck a pin on a page, and it landed on Peter Suggs' someone. I thought I might get fingers or something interesting. I was 12 or 13, and I went to school the next day and said, my name's Suggs. When the register was read out, I refused to answer unless they said Suggs, which only added to the demise of my education. I made everyone call me Suggs. I used to write things on walls. Suggs is our leader. I made my own myth, which is slightly extraordinary. People would say to me, are you Suggs? Are you the Suggs everyone's talking about? Suggs met Mike Barson hanging around after school. He says, the only reason I became the singer was because they couldn't find anybody better. I auditioned one day when I was completely pissed and sang a verse from See You Later Alligator. The Six Piece began rehearsing three times a week now that they had a better place to practice than Barson's living room, without disturbing anyone. The father of one of Barson's friends owned a disused building on the Finchley Road with a basement which meant that not only could the band play any time they wanted, they could also leave their equipment there set up for them. They played a mix of rock and roll and reggae songs at parties, school functions and the occasional paying gig in proper venues and realised they had something that could be the start of their own sound with their first original song called Mistakes. 1977 saw more upheaval in the fledgling North London invaders. Smythe left after an argument with Barson and was replaced on bass by Barson's girlfriend's brother, Gavin Rogers. Suggs was kicked out of the band for watching Chelsea play football rather than turning up to rehearsals. I mean, they sacked me once, you know, um, because I wasn't taking it seriously for the first, I don't know how long, it may have been three months, it may have been a year. But I was probably more keen on going to football than I was in music at that particular time, which was difficult because the band were rehearsing on Saturdays and, um, and increasingly I would stop going to rehearsals on Saturdays and go to the football. Drummer John Hasler replaced him on vocals and a replacement drummer, Gary Dovey, was recruited. Finally, Thompson left the band after Barson criticised his saxophone playing. By 1978, however, 
The band had solidified after they allowed Suggs to return as a vocalist after he had filled in temporarily for Hasler, who then became the band's manager. And in the end, I remember reading Melody Maker one day, and I can't remember why, but there was an advert for a singer, and um, it was Mike Barson's phone number. <laughs> so I rang him up, and he said, yeah, you know, we're getting a bit more professional. Suggs turned up at the audition after he'd read an advertisement from the band saying they were looking for a permanent singer. He said, they asked me back because I was the only one who knew all the words. I couldn't have done anything else. Foreman and Barson remained on guitar and keyboards respectively. Thompson also returned after patching things up with Barson. Two new members were found in bass player Mark Bedders Bedford, who replaced Gavin Rogers, and Bedford brought in his friend Dan Woody Woodgate to replace Gary Dovey on drums, as Dovey had quit due to a confrontation with Thompson. Your drummer Woody said that the first time he saw you, he thought that all the other acts on the bill were better musically, but that you had some kind of brilliant energy. Now, Suggs, from the point of view of someone watching the group, do you think, <laughs> do you, do you think he was right? Um, yeah, definitely. What did you think, Donkey? You weren't in the group I at the time, were you? It was an inner power, I think, madness of an inner, inner jollity, an inner revolvity that sort of permeates sometimes into the, into the crowds hey, around us. Why did you call him Donkey? He, 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 he always calls me Donkey. <laughs> That's good. Quick um. Due to Sham 69's Jimmy Percy starting a record label and signing another band called The Invaders, the North London Invaders briefly changed their name to Morris and the Miners, but renamed itself in 1979, paying homage to one of their favourite songs by ska reggae artist Prince Buster. Band Biographies is proud to present the divine story of madness. Madness, madness, madness. Somebody says, let's name ourselves after one of our songs. So I said, oh yeah, madness, you know, is an utter joke. And everybody said, yeah, yeah, you know, which I didn't like the name at the time, but it seems to suit us now. Madness is a good band, man. I mean, nobody tell me that. I, I, don't, I don't usually say what the next man say. I've owned mine, I'm on choice, you know, on taste, on flavor. And I consider them excellent band. And they did an excellent job of my music, my interpretation of my songs. In the first few months of 1979, Madness began playing venues like the Nashville Rooms, Dublin Castle, and the Hope and Anchor, all iconic venues in London and were beginning to bring bigger crowds to these shows than the bands they were supporting. Well, this is the Dublin Castle, and this is the pub where um, Madness, or the Invaders, as we were called then, got our first residency, which is to say um, we played every Friday night, I think maybe for a couple of months. And it's really, um, you know, if maybe the Beatles <laughs> uh, got their thing going in Hamburg, this was our version of it. <laughs> Except without the girls. A diary entry by Barson on the 19th of May reads, Mentioned by Melody Maker by Specials as one of the few bands to play Scar, they haven't even seen us. On the 8th of June, they were supporting the Specials at the Nashville Rooms, but couldn't hang around to properly meet them, as they were also playing a headline show at the Dublin Castle later that evening.
16th of June, the band saved up £300 and an advance from Warner Brothers Publishing and went into Pathway Studios in Highbury to record three songs, The Prince, Madness and My Girl, two of which would make up their first single. Warner Brothers International Vice President Rob Dickens liked what he heard, so much so that he offered them a royalty deal and said they'd begun attracting interest from lots of other record companies like Sire, EMI and Virgin, a lot of whom had started sending A&R scouts to their gigs. In July, Gary Bushell wrote in Sounds, describing Madness as something like a cross between the Specials and the Piranhas, with a little touch of Chaz and Dave in the vocals thrown in for good measure. The music press had also begun to write about Madness. Melody makers Mark Williams described them as six fairly nondescript teenagers, the only visual heretic Mikey Barson who wears a bootlace tie, a dirty tux and exudes sleaze behind a set of keyboards. All save Barson have closely cropped barnets and look vaguely threatening. But this is not the case. Suggs is a natural showman, a street-level raconteur who keeps up a constant stream of personalised banter with his audience, dedicating almost every number to someone or something each more laughable than the last. Vocally reminiscent of Kevin Ayers, his original songs have a strong blue beat feel, and he's even written one extolling Prince Buster called The Prince, but his style and delivery is closer to Johnny Moped. Shuffling like Pterodactyl and the Dinosaurs, or grating listlessly like Sky Saxon and the Seeds, they defy tidy comparisons. Just when you've got familiar with Barson's fairground organ, or Thompson's affable knockabout sax, the former dons an England supporter's beanie and careens into tears of a clown, or the latter has a crack at Hall of the Mountain King, as if Grieg had written it after cranking up a gram of sulphate. By the third encore, half the punters were jumping on tables, waving clenched fists, and the other half were reeling about the glass-strewn floor, jolly pissed. Catch Madness supporting the specials AKA at the Nashville next week, and you may find yourself similarly disposed. Buster, he sold the heat With a rock-steady beat The stuff that stood out on radio to me was uh, mainly Motown and reggae. And um, Prince Buster pretty much stuck out. And um, started writing, taking pieces from various Prince Buster songs, lines, uh, putting them together. And thus, you know, came up with the Prince. The Prince and Madness were remixed on the 9th of July in order to remove the hum from Thompson's saxophone solo, though Barson was unimpressed with the remix, calling it shit. Madness made a trip to Liverpool on the 14th to play at Eric's with the specials and supported them again at the Electric Ballroom in Camden, appearing above the Modettes and the Selector. On the 29th they were playing London's Lyceum, supporting the Pretenders and being watched by Elvis Costello. However, they didn't ingratiate themselves with the venue's owners who made them come back to paint over the graffiti they'd sprayed across the walls of the dressing rooms. On the 2nd of August, John Peel gave Madness their first radio play on his legendary radio show, playing the song Madness. Two days later, the band's former drummer turned manager Hasler 
had the band's savings, £350, stolen from the squat he was living in. Barson's diary recalls the retrieving of the money. 4th of August, John had £350 nicked from his squat by a punk called Barry Watford. 5th of August, found Barry's address, kidnapped him from Milton Keynes and retrieved £121. First class Sherlock Holmes operation, took him round size though to wait for bank on Monday. 6th of August, had to go back to Milton Keynes to get Barry's passport for the bank. His mum phoned the cops and his case comes up tomorrow. He's pleading guilty. 7th of August, Barry Watford was fined 150 quid on top of paying us back. Two-tone records had been set up in 1979 by the special's main songwriter and keyboardist Jerry Dammers rather than sign his band to another label. The label spawned the two-tone music and cultural movement, which was popular among skinheads, rudies and some mod revivalists. Dammers, with the assistance of the special's bassist Horace Panter and graphic designers John Teflon Sims and David Storey, created artwork that was to become central to two-tone records. The logo portrays a man in a black suit, white shirt, black tie, pork pie hat, white socks and black loafers, named Walt Jabsko. The fictional character was based on a photograph of Peter Tosh, a former member of the Whalers, and got his name from one of Damas's old American bowling shirts. The second single released by Two Tone Records was The Prince by Madness on the 10th of August. Written by Thompson, the song is a tribute to Jamaican ska singer Prince Buster, whose song Madness inspired the change of name from the North London Invaders. The Prince became a surprise hit, spending 11 weeks on the UK singles chart, peaking at number 16. No music video was filmed for the single, However, the band later bought the rights to a Top of the Pops performance from the 6th of September 1979. This performance has since been associated with the single and has featured on compilations of the band's music videos. This performance also got Woodgate's mum moved out of her job as assistant floor manager on the show for fear of being accused of nepotism. Woodgate said, It was not the dumb thing. Someone might have thought this is a bit rich. Annie Ogden's the floor manager and here's her son on the show. So mum was moved to play school and dad's army. I remember many times having play school's Big Ted and Humpty at the house. She used to bring them home for safekeeping. To support the single, Madness toured around the UK with the specials and the selector. On this tour, trouble began to seep in at the gigs. Um, <clears throat> there were a lot of skinheads at the early gigs, and consequently there were sometimes, you know, incidents. But, um, I mean, yeah, that all came from the sort of, the scar thing, which we didn't really want to get that associated with anyway. But, like, we, I mean, we've just been on tour recently, and then they were pretty manic, actually, compared... I mean, I think it often depends what, what the latest single is. When we had My Girl out, we'd have a lot of young girls. When we had One Step Beyond that, we had a lot of skinheads. When, uh, when we put the rise and fall out, we had a lot of university professors. <laughs> Everyone's gigs, when we first started, there were, there were lots of fights. It just wasn't confined to two-tone, or us particularly. Um, and because the punk thing was occasionally violent. You know, the way we dressed and everything was reminiscent of the skinheads, uh, you know, before our time, when they first uh, skinhead fashion arrived and then ska music, and then they think, yeah, you know, this is something they could uh, relate to. On the 12th of October, at the Electric Ballroom in Camden, 
Suggs had to come on stage during Echo and the Bunnymen's set to make it clear to the baying mob who'd been enjoying bad manners and were looking forward to madness, who were in no mood for the Bunnymen's post-punk new wave sound, that the band deserved a chance. Because Madness were playing so often outside of London at this point, they come to the attention of a London-based record label owner, Dave Robinson, one of the co-founders of Stiff Records. Stiff had released the first UK punk single, New Rose by The Damned, and were at the time heavily promoting Ian Dury. You can hear more on the early years of Stiff Records on the episode of band biographies about The Damned. A few people recommended and said just one band that you'd really like, which is Madness. And um, I couldn't see them. So I was getting married. And I just got the idea that maybe they, to see them, they might play at the wedding, really. It's just a kind of a rough idea. And, and to my surprise, they agreed. And that's the first time I actually saw them play. I mean, I think they came to take the piss, really. You know, they saw a record company executive, you know, we'll show them kind of thing. Robinson said, My wife gave me hell afterwards, saying you haven't spoken to me all night. You're up there watching the band. They were very good. I decided there and then that they were likely, and signed them up as soon after as I could. Acts on Two-Tone Records signed a contract that allowed them to leave the label after releasing just one single, which was an unusual deal in the record industry. Madness and The Beat were two bands that took advantage of this clause. At the end of their UK tour, and amid lots of very positive coverage in the music press, in which the term The Nutty Sound, a term coined by Thompson, who said to Sounds Robbie Miller, our music sounds like fairgrounds and organs and things, it just sounds nutty, was beginning to catch on. Madness signed with Stiff Records on the 3rd of September and were given a £10,000 advance so they could all give up their day jobs. Oh, that was the bed and breakfast man! On the 11th, the band began recording its debut album at Eden Studios in Acton with the production team of Clive Langer and Alan Winstanley. Langer had been a founding member of the art rock group Deaf School and had briefly been in Big in Japan, a band whose members went on to have more success after leaving it than in the band itself. These included Holly Johnson of Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Bill Drummond of the KLF, Ian Brody of the Lightning Seeds, Budgie, who we know all about from the Susie and the Banshees and the Slits episodes of Band Biographies, and David Balfe of The Teardrop Explodes, amongst others. Win Stanley had previously been an engineer on Generation X's debut self-titled album the year before. The team of Langer and Win Stanley would go on to produce a number of Madness albums along with multiple albums for Elvis Costello, The Teardrop Explodes, Dexy's Midnight Runners, They Might Be Giants, Morrissey, Bush, Aztec Camera and Aha, among others. During the recording of the album, Madness appeared on top of the Pops for a second time on the 19th, playing The Prince, which was climbing steadily up the charts to number 16. The Prince was re-recorded for the album. As well as having a distinctively clearer sound, it also has a slight change in lyrics, which Barson later said he preferred to the single version in a book about the album in 2009, part of the 33 and a third series of books about specific albums. The Prince's B-side, Madness, was also re-recorded for the album with a more multi-layered arrangement. 
The album is basically made up of Madness's live set list and was recorded over only a few days. Originally, Barson sang lead vocals on the song My Girl, but Suggs was brought in to sing it instead. Suggs also re-recorded over Chris Foreman's vocals on Bed and Breakfast Man. Ahead of the album's release, Madness went on the Two-Tone tour with the Specials and the Selector, despite having left Two-Tone Records. On the 6th of October in Huddersfield, trouble hit the tour, as fans from Middlesbrough caused a riot because they were refused entry. Both of the vans Madness was using to tour in ended up with smashed windows and slashed tyres. The next night they recorded the performance part of their next music video at the Hope and Anchor in Islington, with American music director Chuck Stadler, who had worked with Devo and had been filming footage for use in the video at various dates around the UK on the two-tone tour. Madness's debut album, One Step Beyond, was released by Stiff Records on the 19th of October. The Nutty Train photo on the sleeve, with all six members of the band walking and leaning back in close lockstep, was shot by Cameron McVeigh, and was inspired by a photo of pub rock band Kilburn and the High Road's roadie Paul Tonkin that appeared on the back cover of the band's 1974 album Handsome. Kilburn and the High Roads was Ian Jury's first band before he left to start up the Blockheads. One Step Beyond stayed in the UK album chart for 78 weeks, peaking at number 2, where it eventually went platinum, having sold over 300,000 copies. It also charted between 11 and 27 in 6 other countries, but just 128 in the US. Reviewing the album at the time, Smash Hits gave One Step Beyond a rating of 6 out of 10. In the US, Robert Criscow wrote in his B-plus rated review in his Consumer Album Guide, If at first I compared them to the Kingsmen, seeking fame and fortune by adding local colour stories from the Portland bars to their repertoire of borrowed licks and melodies, that was mostly because it wasn't rock and roll enough. But after I heard more Scar, lots more, the exoticism faded and not just from exposure. I realised that a big problem with Afro Polka was that it didn't sound hip enough and resisted. Anyway, Madness do it more rock and roll than anybody. Homie and Bumptious, they're more purely fun than the most giddily self-conscious power pop. More recently, the Rolling Stone album guide gave the album 3.5 stars in 2004. Mojo and Q both gave the album 4 out of 5 stars, as did the Encyclopedia of Popular Music in 2011. In 2009, Lois Wilson gave it 5 stars out of 5 in Record Collector. Most recently, Joanne Green wrote in her 2016 review on AllMusic, One Step Beyond dragged listeners kicking and screaming into a wacky world of their own creation, where Prince Buster slams into swan-clad ballerinas and boats on the Nile, where chipmunks are go, and the sun never set on the land of hope and glory. The Nutty Boys was an apt alternate moniker for the band, as they rocket madly through this set, all wicked grins and giggles, smug with their own cleverness, and winking slyly at their own goofy musical jokes. Who could be so po-faced as to not join in? One step beyond, more like a giant leap into a brave new world.
Chaz Smythe performed on the album but was not an official member of the band at the time. He would formally join Madness a few weeks after the album was released, which was coincidental because the song on which he delivers probably the most iconic opening line in music was about to be released. Hey you! Don't watch that! Watch this! This is the heavy, heavy monster sound! The nuttiest sound around! So if you've come in off the street and you're beginning to feel the heat, well listen buster, you better start to move your feet to the rockinest, rock steady beat of madness! One step beyond! The band's second single and the album's title track, One Step Beyond, was released on the 26th of October. It's a cover of the B-side of Prince Buster's 1964 single, Al Capone, which got to number 18 on the UK singles chart. Although Prince Buster's version was mostly instrumental except for shouting the song title a few times, the Madness version features a spoken intro by Smash and a barely audible background chant of Here We Go. The spoken line, don't watch that, watch this, in the intro is from another Prince Buster song called Scorcher. Don't watch that, watch this, it's a Scorcher, reggae time. And is also used at the start of Dave and Ansel Collins's Funky Funky Reggae. Whilst the next line, this is a heavy heavy monster sound, is taken from a Dave and Ansel Collins song called Monkey Spanner. This is a heavy heavy monster sound. Hitting you smack down right through the middle. And red, 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 One step I saw that as the first single and a great title for an album. So when I went down to hear the album when it was finished, which was, you know, they did it very, very quickly. They hadn't recorded it, the track. And they all were aware that, you know, they hadn't, and that I would be, you know, they, they, they were like that throughout the entire relationship I had to them. They're always trying to pull one over on you, really. You had to kind of get up a little earlier in the morning and think about it. Really. According to Wynn Stanley, one of the album's producers, the Madness version was created by taking the original one minute, 10 second instrumental and repeating it with the second half treated with an even-tied harmoniser to make it sound slightly different. Langer and Wynn Stanley intended to do a full remix, but found that the double-length rough mix had already been sent for mastering before they were able to. One Step Beyond we didn't like at all. We just thought it was a throwaway, and it was only, we only did a couple of bars of it. We thought, ah, there you go. But we didn't know about editing. Of course, he just took the couple of bars and repeated it. Blast. Didn't get away with that. I'd picked something they couldn't see at all, which was successful. Uh, they kind of gave me, I became the single picker, so that was, became my kind of job. The band's first proper music video was released to promote the single, the one directed by Chuck Statler interspersing a performance at the Hope and Anchor with tour footage. It also features Smash performing the lead vocals, with Sugg stood in front of the band holding a microphone, despite not singing. The album version of the song features the full spoken introduction, but this was cut short for the single release. When the song is performed live, which Madness regularly does, opening their sets with it to this day, 
Smash tends to ad-lib during the instrumental portions of the song. To capitalise on the success of One Step Beyond, Madness also recorded the song in different languages. The song was recorded in Spanish as Un Paso Adelante, because many popular English songs at that time were being covered by Spanish artist Luis Cobos, and the band wanted to do their own version. They also recorded it in Italian as Un Paso Avanti, and sang this version during the Italian part of their world tour in October 1980. The cover art for the single is from the same photo shoot with Cameron McVeigh as the album cover. Even though the lyrics are performed by Chaz Smash, he does not feature on the photograph because he was not a full member of the band at the time the photos were taken. However, he is shown on the back cover of the album in various dancing poses. The single's cover art is similar to the photo used on the album, but the band is in a slightly different pose. The Spanish release of the single also featured slightly different cover art. The Italian version features a two-tone drawing of the pose containing only four dances. The B-side of One Step Beyond were mistakes, and the 12-inch also included the song Nutty Theme. One Step Beyond charted at number 76 in the US, 34 in the Netherlands Top 40 chart, and 29 in the Netherlands Single Top 100 charts, 28 in Ireland, 19 in Austria, 7 in the UK, 5 in Spain, 3 in Switzerland, and number 1 in France. On the 27th of October, the worst violence of the two-tone tour occurred during the selectors' set at Hatfield Polytechnic, where thugs claiming to be members of the Anti-Fascist League broke in and attacked some audience members, claiming that they were National Front supporters. Ten people were hospitalised, eleven were arrested, and the damage to the venue came to £1,000. Madness's tour manager, John Kellogg's Kalinowski, was sacked by Stiff Records for not being there, and leaving McVeigh, the photographer, in charge. However, Madness supported him, after which he was reinstated. Kellogg said, I think it was Lee who got on the phone to me and who was really sorry, saying, hey, you got fired, that was our fault what happened. I suddenly realised, God, these boys really care for me. In a way, you know, they appreciated what I was trying to do for them, show them the ropes, you know. Later in the tour, Madness did an interview with the NME and Smash told journalist Diane Pearson that we don't care if people are in the NF as long as they're having a good time. This added to the Madness at NF supporting racists accusations. Smash later replied to the article in the song Don't Quote Me On That, which appeared on the EP Work, Rest and Play in 1980. On the 14th of November, after 29 dates, Madness left the two-tone tour, replaced for the remaining dates by Dexy's Midnight Runners, as planned, as Madness had a US tour to fit in before Christmas. They did a nutty train across the stage, while the specials performed Blank Expression, exiting stage left, suitcases in hands, waving goodbye. Back in London on the 18th, Madness spent the weekend playing at the Electric Ballroom, the audience seemed largely to consist of members of the NF Supporters Club, who prevented the band Red Beans and Rice from completing their set because their lead vocalist was black. 
Suggs came on stage to express the fact that he was very disappointed in their behaviour. Red Beans and Rice came back on stage, and although there were people in the audience who agreed with Suggs, it didn't stop the skins from sea kiling once Madness were finished. On the 21st, Madness flew to the USA. Kellogg's was, by now, slowly taking control not only of tour managing, but also of managing the band outright. On this tour, Madness was supported by the Go-Go's at the Whiskey A Go-Go in LA and Dead Kennedys in the Mabway in San Francisco. The band returned to the UK to play Nightboat to Cairo and Embarrassment on the Old Grey Whistle Test on the 11th of December alongside Gary Newman, Jane Eyre and the Belvedere's and The Knack before embarking on their third UK tour supported by the VIPs. On the 21st of December, the second single from One Step Beyond and Madness's third single, My Girl, was released. My Girl was originally known simply as New Song when the band added it to their set a year earlier, and had been written by Barson about his then-girlfriend Kirsten Rogers. He sang it originally, but Suggs re-recorded vocals for it for the album. The music video for My Girl features Madness performing the song at the Dublin Castle pub in London. The stage in the Dublin Castle had been especially extended for the video, so that the band could perform on it comfortably. My Girl spent 10 weeks on the UK singles chart, and peaked at number 3 on both the UK and Irish single charts. The song was re-released in 1992 following the success of the re-release of It Must Be Love, where, even 12 years later, it charted at number 27 in the UK. We are In 1984, Tracy Ullman covered My Girl, but changed the title to My Guy's Mad at Me. Ullman had had some success as an actress and comedian on the stage, and on TV in the UK sketch comedy show A Kick Up the 80s, where she acted alongside Rick Mayall and Miriam Margulies. This enabled her to star in her own show, Three of a Kind, co-starring with Lenny Henry and David Copperfield, the comedian rather than the illusionist or the Dickens character. While working on Three of a Kind, Ullman got talking to Rosemary Robinson in a hairdresser's. Rosemary said that her husband, Dave, head of Stiff Records, Madness's label, liked the parody songs that she sang on TV. Do you want to make a record? Rosemary asked. Yeah, I want to make a record, Ullman replied. She released two albums on Stiff. The first, You Broke My Heart in 17 Places, was a covers album, released in 1983, and reached number 14 on the UK album chart and 34 in the US. In 1984, her second album You Caught Me Out was released, and fared worse, peaking at just number 92 in the UK, and wasn't even released in the US. However, it did chart at number 13 in Sweden, and 11 in Norway. Madness's Mark Bedford played bass on her version of My Guy's Mad At Me, Ullman's version was in the UK Top 40 at the same time as Madness's Michael Caine, and peaked at number 23 in the UK and the Dutch Top 40, 19 in the Dutch GFK chart, and number 7 in Ireland. The music video featured the British politician Neil Kinnock, at the time the leader of the opposition. The single was also released as a 7-inch picture disc, with a picture of Ullman and Kinnock sitting at a table. 
Shortly after this in 1985, Ullman moved to the US and began an incredibly successful career there, where her own The Tracy Ullman Show gave the world its first taste of The Simpsons. Since then, electronic dance music act Audio Bullies included My Girl on its 2003 instalment of the Back to Mind series of DJ Mix albums, which were based on the music each act would play at home after a gig. Audio Bullies' Tom Dinsdale referred to the song as classic madness, adding, everyone should be able to relate to this tune. Suggs collaborated with Audio Bullies on their 2003 song This Road from the album Generation. The indie rock band with Scar leanings The Ordinary Boys recorded a live version of My Girl in 2006 as a B-side to a split single with rapper Lady Sovereign called 9 to 5. This version of My Girl was recorded at the Brixton Academy and featured Suggs on vocals. On the 2nd of May 2008, Suggs and Smash performed a new arrangement of My Girl by Pet Shop Boys live at the Heaven nightclub in London. They appeared as part of Pet Shop Boys' live set during a benefit evening for Dainton Connell's family called Can You Bear It? Dainton Connell, whose nickname had been Bear, had been Pet Shop Boys' bodyguard since 1989 and was killed in a car crash in Moscow the previous October. Before that, he'd been a notorious main face in Arsenal Football Club's hooligan firm, and though a skinhead, he was instrumental in stopping the British National Party from gaining a foothold in the firm. He provided backing vocals to the Pet Shop Boys song One and One Make Five from the 1993 album Very, and had appeared in the videos for So Hard and Jealousy. He was also referenced in the 1997 film Fever Pitch, which was based on Nick Hornby's 1992 best-selling memoir, Fever Pitch, A Fan's Life. A version of My Girl features on the Pet Shop Boys 2009 Christmas EP, along with a remix of the song. Barson wrote a follow-up song, My Girl 2, which was recorded and released as a single in 2012. Though it contains the phrase My Girl, the song is otherwise musically and lyrically quite distinct from the original song. On the 3rd of January 1980, Madness performed My Girl on Top of the Pops as the opening act, making them the first band to play on the show in the 1980s. There's one for you pub quizzes. After this, Madness travelled to Europe to begin a tour of the continent through to the beginning of February, followed by another North American tour from the end of February to March, whereupon they embarked on the second leg of the European tour for the rest of the month that saw them struggle to talk to journalists and at one point found themselves miming their songs in front of an audience on a Spanish radio station. The band felt they had exhausted the material from One Step Beyond and did not want to release any more singles from the album. However, Stiff Stave Robinson disagreed. Eventually, a compromise was made and the band decided to release an EP featuring one album track and three new tracks. 
The result was the Work, Rest and Play EP, which featured the song Night Boat to Cairo from the One Step Beyond album, and the new songs Deceives the Eye, The Young and the Old, and Don't Quote Me on That. Barson's retort to the NME article where he was quoted as accepting of racist NF fans at Madness gigs. Madness has always denied the allegations that they condone racism or are racists themselves. Night Boat to Cairo was originally composed as an instrumental by Barson, but was expanded when Suggs added lyrics. The song has an unusual structure with a single long verse followed by an even longer instrumental section, which is heavily sax based. At one point after a key change from C to F, the instrumental slows right down and momentarily stops. Then the opening notes of the song are repeated before the tempo picks back up again. Suggs described it in Terry Edwards' 2003 book Madness One Step Beyond as miles of introduction, a couple of verses, then miles of instrumental, no chorus, and the title isn't even mentioned apart from me shouting it at the beginning. It's an atmosphere with great music and words. Of course it is a song, but not a traditional one. You weren't singing through all of that number, is that because you didn't have enough words? Yeah. There was not enough time to make a proper video before the record was released, so a low-budget karaoke-style one was quickly filmed in a studio instead. It is a sort of instruments video, you know, so there's not many ideas, but we had such fun making it. <laughs> you know, because we were all a bit drunk. And we just got some gold discs and all this sort of thing, you it's know. We were under tremendous pressure, we were just going to America, you know. The record company said, we don't want to make a video. Then they said we do, and we had to do it at 12 o'clock at night, but we had good fun, you know, mm -hmm. it came out all right. The video features the band dressed in stereotypical British colonial attire, including short trousers and pith helmets, in front of a green screen backdrop of an Egyptian pyramid. The lyrics appear on the screen, bouncing ball style, as Suggs sings them. During the long instrumental sections of the song, the band run and jump about the set, marching and performing their signature nutty train. Despite, or perhaps because of, the poor effects and editing, an all-round unprofessional feel, it became very popular with fans. Perhaps this was also due to the carefree nature and fooling around of the band on screen that would become a staple of many of their videos from here on. I think the main thing is that we all get on, so we're not embarrassed in, in each other's company, which is always good, which means you can you know, let, let yourself go. Like he would always act really stupid, you know. <laughs> so I have little costumes made from like a traffic wardens one with things that come out. He refuses to wear them, but you know. I mean, generally, we just try and think of, of as many visual ideas as we can that we can do ourselves that don't involve a lot of props and money. I mean, a lot of groups just stand here with their instruments, you know, which is pretty boring, and we've done some without instruments altogether. But usually the best thing to do is, you know, do it with instruments, so you know you've got that, and that's... And then you just have a load of various other ideas, like, you know, playing a guitar underwater, or something yeah, like that. Yeah, as long that. as you, you know, once you've got the backbone for an idea, then the, the rest comes on, on the day. The rest of the ideas are just laying about in front of you. Well, I think if it's just a good idea, it's a good idea, and you don't really need to sort of embellish it too much. And we, we try to keep to a strong but simple theme without using, you know, as Sug said, too many expensive things. And also, the song yes. has to be good as well, which a lot of people overlook. Do you know what I mean? Some people make a really fancy video for a really mm -hmm. naff song. On this track, their attitude can definitely be attributed to the large amount of beer they drank while filming it.
EPs were at the time eligible to be entered into the UK singles charts, where it peaked at number 6 and number 12 in Ireland. In some other countries, Nightboat to Cairo was issued as a two-track 45 RPM single containing a variety of B-sides. In France, Swan Lake. In Belgium, where it charted at number 25, the B-side was The Young and the Old. And in Germany, it was accompanied by Don't Quote Me on That. In the Netherlands, where it reached number 29 in the single Top 100 chart and 21 in the Dutch Top 40 chart, Nightboat to Cairo was the B-side, and Tarzan's Nuts from One Step Beyond was the A-side. This is in addition to the 33rpm EP, which was also issued there. In Portugal, the EP featured a different mix of Nightboat to Cairo. Nightboat to Cairo was reissued in the UK in 1993, following the success of the reissued version of It Must Be Love, but failed to reach the top 40, peaking at just number 56. The song is often used by Madness to close out live concerts, and Nightboat has passed into Cockney rhyming slang as a term for a gyro, or unemployment benefit check. The song was featured on the 2011 Nintendo Wii video game Just Dance 3. It inspired the Israeli hit Rakavet Leia Lachaya, Hebrew for Night Train to Cairo, by the Israeli rock group Machina. Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. In April and May, Madness toured the UK with support from Clive Langer and The Boxes, 
which featured Barson's brother Ben on the keyboards, and the Go-Go's, who had just signed to Stiff Records in the UK. They then went on yet another European jaunt before landing back in the UK for more dates before they took a break to write new songs together. On the 14th of July, Madness went into Eden Studios in London to begin recording its second full-length album, again with the production team of Langer and Wynne Stanley. On the 5th of September, its lead single, Baggy Trousers, was released. Baggy Trousers was written by Suggs and Foreman, and famously reminisces about school days. Suggs later recalled in a BBC documentary which aired in 2000 called Young Guns Madness. I was sleeping on the floor in Lee's flat in the Caledonian Road, and um, I was trying to write a song, and I was very specifically trying to write a song in the style of Ian Jury, and especially the songs he was writing then, which often sort of catalogues of, of phrases in a, in, a, in, a, in a constant stream, you know. And I was writing about my time at school. Uh, Pink Floyd had that big hit with Teacher Leave Those Kids Alone, and it, it didn't really relate to me because I hadn't been to a public school where I was bossed about and told to sing, you know, um, Royal Britannia and all that. I went to a school where there was absolutely bugger all going on. And the teachers were in the same boat, you know, they dreaded having to go back as much as we did. The music video was shot in Kentish Town in northwest London, at the Kentish Town Church of England Primary School on Islip Street and the Peckwater Estate. Saxophonist Thompson decided he wanted to fly through the air, kicking the heads off mannequins that were supposed to represent the other band members for his solo suspended from wires hanging from a crane, which was inspired by seeing Peter Gabriel doing something similar during a Genesis concert he'd been to. The resulting shot is one of the most popular of any Madness music videos, and Thompson has recreated the moment live at many Madness gigs. The video was met with a great critical response from the public, and was particularly important for Madness, as it allowed television shows such as Top of the Pops to show the band's music video instead of the band having to be on the show, taking the strain off the band and the poor BBC floor managers. We always used to sit in a room together before the video was made and we always come up with our crazy ideas. I mean, most of them were like jokes. Anyone who could think of them funny, it was like kind of millions of little Benny Hill sketches. Mm. And um, Dave Robinson had a team of people that could make them real. As in, you know, you couldn't go through, you couldn't be Superman charging through one window, coming out the other, flying through the air. So you, you know, just demolishing the building. top of a double-decker bus pretending to be Superman. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Baggy Trousers charted at number 30 in Australia and France, 23 in Belgium, 6 in the Netherlands single top 100 and 4 in its Dutch top 40 chart, 5 in Ireland and 3 in both New Zealand and the UK, where it spent 20 weeks in the charts and ended up as the 28th best-selling single of 1980. In 1986, Colgate used the song's melody in a television advert in which a group of kids sing different lyrics about Colgate Blue Minty Gel Toothpaste, a variant of which was later used in the United States. Morning time and we're awake, brush our teeth with new Colgate, Colgate Blue Minty Gel, Colgate Blue Minty Gel. It's a brilliant new toothpaste, like the colour, love the taste. I've got Blue Minty Gel, Mum and Dad use it as well. I want fun, we'll have, squeeze it on and off we go. Twice a day is good for 
Colgate New Blue Minty Gel. You'll love it! The advert was seen as groundbreaking and had to be pre-approved by the band. Its co-writer, J. Pond Jones, wrote on his own website in 2016, Many years later, I found out how they actually quite liked it. Even now, Carl from the band introduces me to people as the bloke who did the Colgate ad. Baggy Trousers was featured in the 2001 film Mean Machine, and in 2011 the song was slowed down to half its normal speed and was used for an advert for Cronenberg for its slow campaign. In 2017, American punk rock hip-hop band The Transplants released a cover version of the song on their Take Cover EP. Madness's second album, Absolutely, was released on the 26th of September and includes some of the band's best-known hits. Oddly though, at the time, critical reception was lukewarm. Alf Martin of the Record Mirror gave the album 4 out of 5 in his review that was entitled Madness in Same, but then if you like what came before, I guess more of the same is a good thing. Famously curmudgeonly US critic Robert Criscow gave the album a B- in his Consumer Record Guide, saying just like the Specials and the Selector, they have second album problems, with the Cockneys soft-pedalling the same subject that confounds the two-toners. Embarrassment, which saxophonist Lee Thompson says was inspired by his sister's mixed-race pregnancy, sounds like it's about an arrest, or the wrong haircut. And though close attention reveals the same class contretemps and irrational fears that haunt Jerry Dammers, no American will suss these songs unaided. This may be localism, and it may be songcraft, but it's probably both. Criscow was probably right in his review that Madness's references would be lost on American listeners, as absolutely spent just two weeks in the Billboard Top 200, peaking at a lowly 146. However, it was reviewed in Billboard magazine as the top of its recommended LPs section. It said absolutely is infinitely less gimmicky and more R&B funk oriented than the debut LP. Lee Thompson's sax work sizzles, and the bass and drum rhythms are more pronounced. Still, there is enough of the nutty sound, a combination of English cabaret music and ska, to make those who enjoy the first album come back for more. Rolling Stone was the most damning of the album though, with writer Greil Marcus saying almost nothing about the album, or in fact the band. He also slags off the specials and states that there was one great band to come from ska revival, and that was The Beat. All he actually says about Madness in his diatribe against Scar and Two-Tone in general is that they are a clunky, clowning, all-white outfit from London. Their wild sense of humour couldn't disguise the fact that they were little more than the Blues Brothers with English accents, though it's unlikely anyone will give them $30 million to waste on a third-rate movie. He says nothing about the album in his one star out of five review, so in my opinion shouldn't really be counted as one. However, in 2004, the Rolling Stone slightly changed its tune when it revised its rating to 3 out of 5 in the Rolling Stone album guide. The reviewers, both past and present, have a point. Absolutely is a similar record, and I personally find it hard to differentiate between albums when songs play on shuffle. But it's the same with a lot of ska bands. 
The difference with me is that I love ska music, so that doesn't bother me. But if you listen closely, you can hear a progression of the nutty sound from one step beyond. And Madness perform on the album with such high energy and big grins, it's hard not to get swept up in Absolutely, even if it does sound similar to its predecessor. Absolutely charted in seven countries, including the lacklustre showing in the US. It reached number 31 in New Zealand, 26 in Norway, 21 in Germany, 15 in Sweden, and 2 in both the Netherlands and the UK, where it eventually got certified platinum, having sold over 300,000 copies. The day after the album's release, Madness was promoting it on British children's TV show Tiz Was, being interviewed by Sally James on her almost legendary pop interview section of the show. During the interview, Suggs and Smash pulled out cans of silly string and sprayed it in James's face. The silly string got stuck in her eyelashes, and as Suggs and Smash attempted to remove it for her, they also pulled off one of her fake eyelashes. As musical editor of the show, James had Madness banned from Tizwas. In October, Madness went to Italy to start its Madness Monster Tour of Europe. At one date in Padova, there was a riot instigated by an Italian anarchistic movement who didn't believe in paying to see bands. Thompson and Foreman were watching the opening act, the Lambrettas, and saw a crowd of hippie-looking people force their way into the venue using machetes and baseball bats to smash windows. They then had a battle with riot police who used tear gas, but they only succeeded in gassing themselves. Drummer Dan Woodgate said, Italy was just phenomenal. I mean, it really was incredible. They had a five-year ban or something on all live acts from foreign lands, and we came into maniac crowds. It was such a buzz. They weren't really potty in Padova. They came through the glass panellings with sledgehammers and axes, and there were riot police in there. You know, I'm an Italian and I want to see a gig. I don't need a ticket. It was brilliant. Really brilliant. Back in the UK in November, the second single from Absolutely, Embarrassment, was released on the 14th. Primarily written by Thompson, Embarrassment was a much darker song in theme than anything else Madness had previously released. The lyrics tell the story of the turmoil following the news that his teenage sister, Tracy, had become pregnant and was carrying a black man's child, and the subsequent rejection by her family, as well as the shame she and they felt. It's about my sister, um, who um, had a child of a mixed race, half-caste child, and it was just uh, the reactions, that, uh, yeah, mainly from uh, relatives and um, you know, close, close friends, just a sort of negative reaction, you know, it wasn't on, but uh, now that child is, what, 20, 21 years of age, and uh, she's uh, an absolute diamond. My name's Hayley Richards, and it was my impending arrival on this planet that inspired a big hit in the 80s. My mum was that embarrassment. She was white, my dad was black, and she was pregnant with me. My uncle Lee is the mad cap saxophonist from Madness, and he wrote the lyrics to the song. This top 10 hit was about how my uncle felt about the family's reaction to my mother's pregnancy. The lyrics to the song Embarrassment. Yeah. Pretty strong stuff. You're a disgrace to the human race. Yeah, that was a bit harsh, wasn't it? It had to, it had to hit home, particularly in the area that I live. Some of the reactions and attitudes to mixed race wasn't nice at all. Um, and fortunately, I was in a position to have a, a, my pop back. 
which was with uh, embarrassment. But as the song was about my mum, I want to understand what it was like for her back then. I think the worst of it was is that I was only 17, and how was it going to be like having a mixed-race baby? Because I did get the odd, dirty look, certain comments. Well, Uncle Lee felt that he was a little bit brutal with the lyrics. What do you think? I think he wrote what more than likely my mum and dad were thinking. My mum was a bit of, yes, Mrs Bouquet. She would worry about what the name Definitely. But after I was born, any embarrassment soon faded. I had an aunt who couldn't have children who wanted to adopt you. And Nanny and Granddad wanted to bring you up. They absolutely adored you. But I didn't want none of it. I wanted to bring up my own baby. So what's it like having a brother in madness? When he got to the age of 16, 17, you know, picked up a saxophone, my mum would say, you're blowing that thing, you give me an headache. And all of a sudden, he's the saxophonist of one of the most popular bands of the 80s. And, yeah, tearfully proud. Oh, don't start with that. <laughs> my mum has been kept busy having had six children and now eight grandchildren, and I've got three of my own. That's for my nutty boy uncle. He's still performing with Madness, and he's just been performing all the characters in a film about his life story. These days, we live quite close to each other in North London, and as a family, we come together quite often. So when I hear the song Embarrassment, all the time, I'll shout, it's, this is my song, it's about me. How do you feel about it now? If I could turn back time, I'd, I'd spend more time on the lyrics and not be so harsh on my family. But in no way uh, am I embarrassed about writing Embarrassment, or do I have any, any regrets? I'm um, saying I feel proud of it. The lyrics are true. Well, I think it's only fitting, Uncle Lee, that you play us out. You're an embarrassment. Oh, thank you. Thank you. As the band was on tour, Thompson only heard snippets of the story through phone calls and letters, but this was enough for him to piece it all together. Thompson recalled later in an interview with BBC reporter Jonathan Duffy in 2005, it was just not acceptable in those days. She was shunned by a few people in the family. My father tried to talk her into getting it terminated. My sister dug her heels in, and I was caught in the middle, wanting everyone to be happy. Luckily, the real-life story had a happy ending. Thompson later stated that when the child named Haley was born, the antipathy of Tracy's relatives dissolved. He said, My mum and dad were all over her. They were forever babysitting. They loved their first granddaughter. All the bad feeling just fell away. In the same interview, Tracy added that the wider family eventually came round to the new mixed-race edition within a couple of years. Attitudes have changed without a doubt, she says. I've got four mixed-race kids and am now married to a white man. He accepts them without a second thought. Looking back on the song that so graphically detailed the family fallout that she had caused, she says, I feel really proud of it. The video for the song was equally dark, filmed in the Embassy Club in London a week previously, featuring mainly Suggs at a dark and dingy bar, interspersed with shots of the band playing ever larger brass instruments. 
The song charted at number 11 in Belgium and 4 in the Netherlands, Ireland and the UK singles charts. The Madness Information Service or MIS fan club was launched in December and the band decided to produce their own comic called The Nutty Boys. The first issue was sold at their 12 Days of Madness gigs on the lead up to Christmas. It featured a cartoon strip depicting the band's rise to fame. Their manager, Kellogg's, came up with a plan to have the magazine sold in newsagents, but this fell through, leaving Madness with 250,000 copies to get rid of. Some were eventually given away free with a 12-inch copy of the next single, The Return of the Lost Palmas 7. The 12 Days of Madness tour saw the band play two times a day, with an earlier matinee show for under-16s that cost only £1 per ticket. The Hammersmith Odeon gigs on Christmas Eve were held as charity events and a toy collection was held at the doors, with the toys then distributed to children's homes. Ever since One Step Beyond, Dave Robinson had wanted Madness to release another instrumental track, so on the 16th of January 1981, the third single from Absolutely was the instrumental song The Return of the Lost Palmas 7. It was written by Barson, Bedford and Woodgate and is not quite completely instrumental, with Barson ad-libbing some words at the start of the track and saying goodbye at the end. This was the first Madness song to feature Barson on sole lead vocals. His next moment in the spotlight would come 28 years later. The video mainly features the band in eateries, switching between a greasy spoon cafe and an elegant restaurant. In the middle of the video, the band are shown dressing as cowboys in Kenwood Park. These three scenarios are interspersed between random video clips from films, TV shows, newsreel footage and sport, which comprise the bulk of the video. Some of these clips are also included in the video for the Bob Marley song One Love, in which Suggs and Smash make guest appearances. Though The Return of the Lost Palmas 7 is not as Scar-influenced as their earlier songs, it was played heavily on Radio 2, helping Madness gain a new generation of older fans. The song spent 11 weeks on the UK singles chart and peaked at number 7. At the end of January, Madness appeared at the Cannes and Mid-M Festival, and a few days later at the Sundown Club on the Charing Cross Road in London to attend the premieres of a film called Dance Craze, which was directed by American filmmaker Joe Massett, who had met Madness on their US tour. The film features live performance footage of them, the specials, the selector, the body snatchers, the beat and bad manners on tour throughout the United Kingdom in 1980. March of 1981 saw the band take a break from TV appearances and gigging, Instead, they filmed the video for their next single and began filming for a drama documentary film called Take It or Leave It, directed by Stiff Records owner Dave Robinson. It tells the story of Madness, who play themselves from their formation to 1981. The first couple of days' footage was damaged as it was developed, which wasn't ideal, but proved to be a dress rehearsal for the ensuing reshoots. Did you find it oddly recreating circumstances from your past? No, no, not really. Like, um, we all put our ideas in, so it was uh, fairly easy. Plus, it was true, you know, well, 99% true to life. You know? mm -hmm. 
yeah. dramatised bits of it. He enjoyed the bits of it with him in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They were, no, they were really good bits. So in black and white, I think the whole film should have been. But I think of Lee like a little flower, a little bud, a little bulb in a pot. <laughs> it's blooming, just blooming. I'm ready to bloom. It's a bit cold today. I've shriveled up. Oh, look, there's all pollen. <laughs> The final day of filming occurred on the day Madness took off for their Absolutely Madness One Step Beyond Far East tour, as Robinson decided to shoot their plane taking off, just in case it crashed. The tour visited Australia, New Zealand and Japan, with a few dates in the US on the way back. During this tour, the single Grey Day was released. Grey Day was one of the first songs Barson had written for the band back in 1978, and is a much heavier dub-style song with a darker, almost miserable feel rather than a scar stomper, and fits with the change in sound that Return of the Lost Palmas 7 had ushered in. But Grey Day was just something that we'd heard nothing about for years that never really got properly finished. And then we just sort of revamped it once at rehearsals and we had nothing else to do, and it sounded quite effervescent. The video is set mainly on the top deck of an open-top bus as it drives around London, and the band performs in a shop window on Camden High Street. A recurring theme in the video is common dreams, such as dreaming that one's flying or falling. Grey Day was the first Madness song to chart in Australia, albeit at number 82. It also charted at number 28 in Belgium, 18 in the Netherlands, and 4 in both Ireland and the UK. On tour in Australia at the Perth Concert Hall, skinheads caused 10,000 Australian dollars worth of damage to the venue by breaking 80 seats and smashing three large glass doors. On the news, a government minister called for an inquiry into banning pop concerts in the concert hall. Madness also made the front pages on the local newspapers. The same day, a national plane strike was called, and the band made it out of Perth on the last available plane to Melbourne, but had to travel 500 miles by bus to the next gig in Adelaide. In the end, frustrated at the situation and not being able to meet their fans because of the gruelling travel requirements, they hired two small private planes until the strike ended. So In Tokyo, Japan, Madness was scheduled to appear in and perform the music for adverts for the Honda City. The Japanese ad company had commissioned and recorded a song which seemed to consist of several Madness songs with terrible lyrics which the band disliked. So Madness used a song which Barson had been working on, called In The City, and recorded three versions of it a one-minute version, a 30-second version, and a 15-second version. After a couple more European festival performances that summer, Madness's accountants explained that the band would be liable to pay less tax on an album that was recorded abroad, so they packed their cases and set off to the Bahamas to spend a few weeks soaking up the sun, as well as recording at Compass Point Studios in Nassau. Tell you why I didn't do it, cause I wasn't there. 
The second single from the album, Shut Up, was released on the 11th of September. The song, which is more of a musical style song, thanks to its whirling keyboard riff, tells the story of a criminal who, despite obvious evidence, tries to convince people that he's not guilty. The video features the band dressed as police officers chasing Suggs, who is presented as a bowler hat and suit wearing used car salesman and a criminal. Suggs's character has his friends, also played by the rest of the band, this time as black and white striped shirt wearing criminals, steal cars for his business, and for the rest of the video Suggs is being chased by the police. In one sequence, the band, still dressed as policemen, gather round as Foreman plays the song's guitar solo on the Super Yob guitar, previously owned by Dave Hill of Slade. The look of the daylight, the less Shut Up spent nine weeks on the UK chart, peaking at number seven. Just close your eyes and count to On the 17th of September, Kellogg's resigned as Madness's manager and was eventually replaced in October by their agent, Matthew Stzumpf, just in time for the release of their third album and its promotional tour. Seven, also known as Madness Seven, was released on the 2nd of October to largely positive but still quite polarised views. In an article written by Robbie Miller in Sounds magazine in 1979, Foreman had explained that the band's music would move with the times and change styles as time goes on. This was shown to be the case, as unlike the first two scar-filled fast-paced albums that preceded it, Seven was something of a change in direction. Even Suggs had toned down his accent and sings a little more melodically. The band's sound moved towards pop, a trend that continued with subsequent albums. Smash Hits writer Pete Silverton gave it a score of 8 out of 10, and Simon Ludgate gave it 5 out of 5 in the record mirror. In 2004, the album was given a middling score of 3 out of 5 in the Rolling Stone album guide. More recently, Stephen Thomas Erlewine wrote in his 4 out of 5 star review on AllMusic that the third album is often where a band makes a great leap forward, and so it is with Madness's Seven. Although they're still clearly the same nutty band that tore it up with One Step Beyond, Seven finds the group expanding its horizons considerably, ratcheting up the melodious pop quotient in their songwriting, as well as the distinctly English character sketches. Much of the album comes across as a blend of the Kinks and Ian Jury, backed by a propulsive scar beat, and the production is just as imaginative, coloured by the odd sitar, finding new carnivalesque flourishes for the horns, and expanding the rhythmic palette considerably. Sometimes the group still gets ridiculously silly, Benny Bullfrog is a novelty by any other name. But the genius of Madness is that they would toss off these frivolous numbers as easily as they would throw out something as elegiac as Grey Day, while finding the sweet spot between those two extremes on singles like Cardiac Arrest. Not every band possesses such a light touch, and while they certainly got more refined just an album later with the rise and fall, Seven is where they revealed the true potential of their talents. There were several different versions of the album released throughout the world, 
Some territories removed the track A Day on the Town entirely, while others replaced it with Never Ask Twice, aka Aeroplane Airplane, which was issued on the Shut Up 12-inch in the UK. In Belgium, Never Ask Twice was issued on a one-sided 7-inch single with initial copies of the album. France renamed A Day on the Town as a place in the city. Australia added It Must Be Love and Never Ask Twice. Spain replaced Cardiac Arrest with It Must Be Love. And Japan added In the City, which was released there as a single after it appeared in the Honda commercials. Initial vinyl pressings featured different mixes of some tracks, most notably Mrs Hutchinson and A Day on the Town, which haven't been used since. In 2011, co-producer Alan Wynne Stanley stated in the Guided Tour of Madness box set that much of the album was re-recorded in London when they returned from Nassau. I mean, I just think that you should write songs about things you understand. When we did the, the Seven album, we went and recorded it in Nassau in Compass Point Studios where uh, Tom Tom Club and Talking Heads do a bit of stuff. And uh, we found that we didn't feel, feel good doing it abroad. Seven charted at number 41 in Sweden and five in the Netherlands and UK album charts. On one of the gigs on the UK tour at the Edinburgh Playhouse, Madness had some giant cabers made from polystyrene and painted to look like real wooden ones. The band threw them into the audience and after the show they were presented with chunks of the cabers to sign. On the 14th of October, the film Take It or Leave It premiered at the Parkway Cinema in Camden Town. Hello. I'm here to warn you that in the video you're about to see, there is an extremely dangerous stunt which I'd like none of you at home to try and copy. On this UK tour, Madness had been performing a cover of Labby Siffrey's 1971 song, It Must Be Love. As I do. When Dave Robinson, head of Stiff Records, heard it, he told them that if they'd release it as a single, it would get to number one, or the band could have his label. A demo version was recorded in a studio in Durham, but was mostly scrapped and re-recorded later in London. It Must Be Love was released as a standalone single on the 25th of November, however it appeared on Madness's first compilation album, Complete Madness, in April 1982. The video shows the band members playing in a white room and standing over a grave. It also features Foreman and Thompson playing the guitar and saxophone underwater. Foreman appears at the start of the video warning viewers not to attempt the very dangerous stunt they are about to see. Possibly that means running down the middle of the road, playing electrical instruments underwater, or swimming with killer whales. Labby Sifri makes a cameo appearance as one of the violin players. It Must Be Love was the first Madness single to chart well in the US, peaking at number 33 on the Billboard Hot 100. It also peaked at 21 in New Zealand, 6 in Australia, 5 in Ireland, and in the UK, Number four, Robinson didn't go through with his offer of giving the band stiff records, funnily enough. 
The song was re-released three more times, once in 1987 on a reissue label called Old Gold Records, with My Girl on the B-side, again in 1988 on Virgin Records with the return of Los Palmas 7 to coincide with its use in the film The Tall Guy, starring Jeff Goldblum, Rowan Atkinson and Emma Thompson. Suggs also appeared in the film, singing the song. Neither of these bothered the charts. Finally, it was released by Virgin again in 1992 to promote the compilation album Divine Madness and did re-enter the charts at number 48 in Australia, 46 in New Zealand, 14 in Ireland and 6 in the UK. Every night, every day. In January of 1982, Madness travelled back to the Mid-M Festival in Cannes for the second year in a row for the French premiere of Take It or Leave It. February the 12th, Cardiac Arrest, the final single from the album Seven, as well as the compilation album Complete Madness, was released. The song was written by Smash and Foreman and tells a story of a workaholic who suffers a fatal heart attack on his way to work. The album version ends after the second chorus with a dramatic cut to a coda, representing the man's heart thudding and then stopping. The single version replaces this with a repeat of the more optimistic first chorus, which fades out. The video featured Smash as a person having a heart attack, and the other band members playing various people advising him not to work so hard. The B-side was in the city, which also appears on Complete Madness. Due to less radio play than usual, which in most part was caused by a ban on the BBC as the corporation decided that a song about a heart attack victim was not suitable for airplay, the decision was apparently made following the death of a Radio 1 DJ's relative. At the time, Radio 1 was still the most popular and influential station in the UK, and the ban certainly hit the record's sales. Cardiac Arrest became the first Madness single since The Prince not to enter the top 10, peaking at number 14. It also charted at number 26 in the Netherlands, 24 in Belgium, and number 4 in Ireland. Cardiac Arrest was very rarely performed live, apart from at a few gigs around the time of its release, and was not performed again until the Can't Touch Us Now tour in 2016. Throughout the first quarter of 1982, Madness pinballed around Europe, appearing on TV and radio shows, because on the 23rd of April, the band released its first greatest hits album, Complete Madness. This compilation included the original 7-inch single mixes of most of the tracks, with the exception of House of Fun. The vinyl and the initial CD releases have shortened fade-outs for many of the tracks, to reduce the running time of each side of the LP version. The first time the songs appeared in full for this compilation was on the 2003 Virgin CD reissue. The original Australian version of the album, issued some months later than in the UK, replaced the song In The City with Driving In My Car. An accompanying video cassette was also released containing all 13 of the group's music videos up to that point, the 12 UK singles plus Bed and Breakfast Man, which was a single in Canada with specially filmed introductions to each video, 
together with the car commercials the band had done for Honda in Japan. Dave Robinson cunningly had the legend 16 hit tracks written on the cover of the album, even though it only contained 12 actual singles. The non-singles being Madness, Bed and Breakfast Man, Take It or Leave It and In The City, although these tunes are hit tracks in anyone's book. This album is tremendously successful, so much in fact that it eventually affected the sales of the next studio album, The Rise and Fall, in December, as faced with the prospect of getting something madnessy for one's loved ones at Christmas, a lot of people opted for the Greatest Hits collection. Complete Madness charted at number 11 in New Zealand, 7 in the Netherlands, 2 in Australia, and number 1 in the UK, eventually selling over 1 million copies. On the 14th of May, Madness scored their first and amazingly only UK number one single as of August 2023 with the song House of Fun from the compilation album Complete Madness, though they had had a number one in France with One Step Beyond in 1979. This also meant that for the first time they were at the top of both the singles and album charts. The song was originally recorded under the title Chemist Facade, but didn't have the Welcome to the House of Fun chorus. Towards the end of the recording session, Dave Robinson turned up, listened to the song and demanded, where's the fucking chorus? So Barson immediately sat down at the piano and wrote the refrain. Neither of the engineers, Win Stanley and Langer, nor Robinson wanted to waste time and money re-recording the whole song. Instead, the recording was edited and the chorus instruments and vocals dubbed onto the recording. The original single contained a 10 second coda of fairground music, but subsequent releases omitted this ending, with a fade out used instead. It wasn't until 2010 that the original 7 inch version was reissued. This was included on the second disc of the re-release of the band's 1982 album The Rise and Fall. This is also the version used on the A Guided Tour of Madness compilation. We've done this song called House of Fun. Was it called House of Fun? House of Fun. Oh, no, it wasn't. At the time, it, it was the chemist for some reason. I'll tell the story, Chris, because I told it. Oh, I'll tell the story, because I've been able to write the blooming thing. Anyway, once again, the boss of the record company, very fast in there, said it hasn't got a chorus, you know, which we hadn't realised. Yeah, get another camera in here. <laughs> it hadn't got a chorus, so we sort of wrote this chorus. <laughs> recorded the chorus in various bits and edited it into the record. The tempos don't exactly match, do they? Yeah, they do. We do that. It's jazz. It's jazz, you get anywhere. No, I mean, it's a chorus, so it's a different, you know, it's a chorus, so it's a different tempo, you know, so what? Well, it doesn't necessarily follow, but it is. It's just very nicely and surgically put in. When Stanley said, in this day and age, with crossfades and pro tools, it would be a piece of piss, but back then it was a nightmare. When Suggs sang Welcome, it was just before the downbeat of the bar, so when I edited it in, it went Elcome to the House of Fun, completely missing out the W. The only solution was for him to go back in and dub in all the welcomes. That was quite a challenge, and all because the song's focus moved away from the chemist shop. The song is about coming of age. The lyrics tell the story of a boy on his 16th birthday, attempting to buy condoms at a chemist. The UK age of consent is 16, and he makes a point of stating that he is 16 today and up for fun. However, the boy is misunderstood by the chemist, as he asks for the condoms using slang euphemisms, 
such as box of balloons with a feather-like touch and party hats with the coloured tips. The confused chemist behind the counter eventually informs the boy that the establishment is not a joke shop and directs him towards the house of fun. Guitarist Foreman commented jokingly about the song in the Complete Madness sleeve notes, I'm not sure about this one. I think it's about coming of age. I can't remember much about it because when it happened to me it was a long time ago. You could buy a packet of fags, a pint of beer and a three-piece suit for half a crown and still have enough left to go and see Rudolph Valentino at the Gaumont. I can't afford to go to the pictures these days, but I hear they talk in them now. The majority of the music video was filmed on the 7th of March at the Pleasure Beach in Great Yarmouth, with parts of it featuring the band on the roller coaster. The video begins with Suggs dressed as a boy entering the shop, with Thompson and Smash behind him, playing the saxophone and trumpet respectively. On entering the shop, Suggs acts out the lyrics of the song, as a 16-year-old boy awkwardly attempting to purchase condoms without much success. Suddenly, on the first chorus, three other band members enter the shop dressed in gowns and wearing sunglasses and silly headgear, much like the Monty Python-esque pepper pots, and perform a simple rhythmic yet comedic tongue-in-cheek stepping dance routine, supposedly acting as dancing pepper pots hired by the Pleasure Beach attraction Funhouse. The band are later seen in a barber shop before the finale of the song is sung on the roller coaster back at the funfair. The film closes with the band on board an infinite roller coaster loop as the chorus fades. Despite the fact that House of Fun was not released in the US, the music video was shown on the newly launched MTV. Due to this, along with other videos such as It Must Be Love and Cardiac Arrest being played on MTV, this helped to introduce Madness to a US audience, though it didn't much help the band in the long term. As well as making the top spot in the UK, it did the same in Ireland and peaked at number 34 in the Netherlands, 23 in New Zealand and number 5 in Australia. At the end of May through to the 9th of June, Madness returned to tour Japan and film more commercials. On July 21st, they performed at the Prince's Trust Gala at the Dominion Theatre in London alongside Phil Collins, Pete Townsend and Robert Plant. Madness were asked to play the national anthem, and did so on kazoos. At the end of the performance, the band bowed respectfully to His Royal Highness and revealed the letters Madness on top of their hats. On the 24th of July, Driving In My Car was released as a standalone single, though it was later included on the re-release of the album The Rise and Fall, as well as its two b-sides, Animal Farm, a mostly instrumental working of the song Tomorrow's Dream from the album 7, and Riding On My Bike, which appeared on the 12-inch and is basically a rewording of the main track, sung by Thompson instead of Suggs. The video shows Madness as car mechanics larking about in their workshop and in their normal suits driving around in their Maddie mobile, a white 1959 Morris Minor. 
The members of fellow ska pop group Funboy 3 make a brief appearance, trying and failing to hitch a ride to their hometown of Coventry, which the A45 mentioned in the song passes through. Driving in my car charted at number 20 in Australia, number 4 in the UK, and number 3 in Ireland. On the 17th of August, Madness rehearsed for an appearance in the comedy series The Young Ones, which was shot two days later. On the episode, entitled Boring, which aired on the 23rd of November 1982, the main characters Vivian, Rick, Neil and Mike go to the Kebab and Calculator pub to alleviate their boredom, despite all sorts of fantastical and unlikely phenomena taking place around them throughout the episode. They miss the performance by Madness and then ask if there's a live band today. Madness say no and blame a power failure amongst other things. Do, uh, do any of you lot know Summer Holiday by Cliff Bitcher? Yeah. You run it, I'll smash your face. <laughs> I'll go sit over there. It's an embarrassment. On the 20th of August, Robert Wyatt's recording of the song Shipbuilding was released on Rough Trade Records, upon which Bedford plays double bass. This was a protest song against the Falklands War. The music was written by Madness producer Clive Langer, whose melody had been inspired by the plaintive way that Wyatt, former drummer with the Soft Machine, sang Billie Holiday's Strange Fruit. Langer was unhappy with the lyrics that Wyatt had written for the song so he played it to Elvis Costello at a party hosted by Nick Lowe, and within days Costello had produced what he described as the best lyrics I've ever written. But I'll be back by Christmas It's just a rumour that was spread around town In a 1983 interview with the NME's Adrian Thrills, Bedford said, At first Robert Wyatt wasn't involved, the original plan was to release four different versions of the song, which was then called 10 to 9, as an EP with four different guest vocalists. There were going to be versions of the song by Elvis, Clive and Steve Allen, Langer's former bandmate in the 70s group Death School. But once Elvis had done some more work on the lyrics and changed the song to shipbuilding, they decided to approach Robert Wyatt, and his version was so special that it came out as a straight single. The lyrically deft Shipbuilding is one of the most intelligent protest songs ever written. Prompted by his anger at the futility of the Falklands War of 1982, Costello's lyrics rail against the war, while still finding sympathy with the soldiers and recognising that the dispatch of the task force is bound to help revitalise the moribund shipyards of the north. Within we felt the reopening the shipyard and notifying 
Few writers would even attempt to squeeze such multi-layered complexity into the format of a pop song. The recruit, whose point of view the song is written from, cheerily looks forward to being back by Christmas, but the writer predicts that within weeks they'll be reopening the shipyards and notifying the next of kin. Costello later wrote, ships were being lost, more ships would soon be needed, so welcome back the discarded men of Camel Laird, Harland and Wolfe, boys are being lost, we need more boys, your sons will do. On its initial release, shipbuilding failed to chart. However, it was re-released on the 20th of April 1983, when it reached number 35 in the UK and 27 in the New Zealand singles charts, marking the first ever UK Top 40 entry for Rough Trade. The single was acclaimed by the music press, with NME writers voting it their third favourite song of 1982. David Bowie was also a fan, he described the song in an interview with Vanity Fair in 2003 about the music that changed his life as a well-thought-through and relentlessly affecting song co-written by Elvis Costello, and why its interpretation is the definitive, heartbreaking, reduces strong men to blubbering girlies. Is it worth it? Costello recorded his own version of the song for his 1983 album Punch the Clock, featuring a performance by jazz trumpeter Chet Baker. Other versions have been recorded by Suede for The Help album, a charity album, Tasmin Archer, whose version was a UK Top 40 hit in 1994, Graham Coxon, June Tabor, The Unthanks, Hugh and Cry and The Bad Shepherds. On the 2003 reissue of Punch the Clock, Costello wrote that he always saw shipbuilding as less of a protest song than a warning sign. But whatever you call it, the words of shipbuilding remain a fine epitaph for the entire Thatcher era. Diving for dear life when we could be diving for pearls. Somebody said On the 24th of August, Madness went into Air Studios on Oxford Street, London, to record their next studio album, The Rise and Fall. This album saw Madness at their most experimental, exhibiting a range of musical styles including jazz, English music hall and Eastern influences. Initially conceived as a concept album about nostalgia for childhood, the concept was eventually dropped though the original theme is still evident, particularly in the title track and the album's major hit, Our House. This was mentioned recently by Suggs when he was being interviewed as part of Tea in the Park Festival highlights, where he claimed that all the band members were told to write about their childhood memories for the rise and fall, although he did say that Barson got the wrong idea and went off and wrote about New Delhi. You have this metal, you can even melt it down. Although the band had previously been avowedly apolitical, the track Blue Skinned Beast was an overt satire on Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher and her handling of the Falklands War. 
paving the way for more political comment on subsequent Madness albums. On your most recent tour, you had another kind of visual aid because to illustrate the song of the Blueskin Beast, you had film footage of uh, material relating to the Falklands. That's right. Yes. Yes. Well, what was it that you had and where did you get it? Um, well, as it goes, uh, our bass player, Ben, is organized getting the film from the film library. And uh, in the Blueskin Beast film, we had shots up of First World War, Second World War. We also had some of a look-alike Margaret Thatcher, and we couldn't get hold of uh, any film of her. Just the film libraries wouldn't let us have them. Really? It's, uh, just a shame. But a lot of um, a lot of the people that come to see us, I think, under understood the song more because of that film. Living room, every time you turn around, I can fly your love once to you. The album also includes the song Primrose Hill, which is similar to the Beatles' song Strawberry Fields Forever, containing psychedelic imagery in a layered arrangement. At the time of the album's release on the 5th of November, the NME described it as the best Madness record. Since then, Rolling Stone rated it relatively high for them at 3.5 stars out of 5 in the 2004 album guide. And on all music, Stephen Thomas Erlewine wrote in his 4.5 out of 5 review, there's a certain grandness to the title of Madness Presents the Rise and Fall. The group's fourth album, an undeniable pop masterpiece. It's clear that the band has ambitions to go several steps beyond Scar, to craft nothing less than a village green preservation society for the 80s. The kinks figure heavily in Madness's design for the Rise and Fall both in individual tunes and the overall arc of the concept album. But so does Ian Jury's celebration of the riffraff of London, the latter giving madness and earthiness that Ray Davis's crew lacked during their time on the Village Green. While madness's forefathers are evident, the rise and fall is recognisably madness in sound and sensibility. Faint echoes of their breakneck nutty beginnings can be heard on Blue Skinned Beast and Mr Speaker Gets the Word. The melodies are outgrowths of such early masterpieces of My Girl. There's a charming, open-hearted humour and carnivalesque swirl that ties everything together. All this comes to a head on our house, as divine a pop single as there ever was, but that's merely the splashiest evidence of Madness's pop craft on the rise and fall. The rest of the album contains the same wit, effervescence and joy, capturing what British pop life was all about in 1982, just as Village Green Preservation Society did in 1968, or Blur's Parklife would do in 1994. The album's cover image was taken at Primrose Hill, and each member of the band is portraying one of the songs. Bedford is calling cards, Foreman is our house, Smash is that face, Thompson is blue-skinned beast, Barson is New Delhi, and Woodgate is Sunday morning. The Rise and Fall peaked at number 47 in the Netherlands, 34 in Norway, 29 in New Zealand, 15 in Germany, 10 in the UK, and number 1 in Sweden. A week later, on the 12th of November, Our House, the first single from The Rise and Fall, was released, 
and became their biggest performing single in terms of the number of territories in which it charted. In the video, the band portrays a working class family and perform with their instruments in the living room as they prepare for work and school. The family also play squash and relax in a hot tub. The video includes exterior shots of other houses, such as the Playboy Mansion, Stocks House in Hertfordshire, and Buckingham Palace. The domestic property featured in the video is a terrace house on Stevenson Street in northwest London, near Wilston Junction. Our House charted at number 49 in New Zealand, 21 on the US Dance Club Songs chart, 17 in Australia, 15 in Belgium, and in the top 10 in West Germany, UK, US Cashbox chart, Switzerland, Norway, Ireland and Sweden where it was number 1. It also charted in two Canadian charts, at number 3 in the CHUM chart and number 1 in the RPM chart. For some reason, it also charted at number 64 in Poland in 2017. When it was recorded, I knew it was a smash, you know. But, I mean, when, when I wrote it, I mean, the music, it was like a sort of, right like, dirge, you know, and uh, Carl came in and he says, oh, I've got these lyrics, and then we sort of had it, you know, and then it was pretty easy from there on. Mm -hmm. So it didn't take that long to write, I suppose. Madness would also go on to perform the song in the second series of The Young Ones in 1984, making them the only band to appear twice on the show. This episode is entitled Sick and is the penultimate episode in series two, the final series of the cult comedy classic. Oh well, I hope Mike Ho is back with the cure. Now, 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 it's madness this way. A musical called Our House featuring Madness songs ran in London's West End between October 2002 and August 2003. On the 15th of December, Madness appeared on the Christmas edition of Top of the Pops performing Our House, despite the fact that they had a long-term agreement with the BBC to show their videos, as it was often too much trouble getting them all to turn up at the same time in person. A special set was built to resemble a front room, with Christmas decorations up, and the band dressed up in cardigans and cloth caps as in the official video. After taking the rest of December and all of January off, a double A-side single was released from The Rise and Fall, which consisted of Tomorrow's Just Another Day and Madness Is All In The Mind. The video for the lead single of the two, Tomorrow's Just Another Day, starts off with two drunks arguing which day of the week the world will end on, before cutting to the band in prison and Suggs being tormented throughout by prison guards, other inmates, and in the outside world, teachers, motorists, rich people in suits, and Alice in Wonderland type characters in a garden. The single version is a slight remix of the album track. A slower, blues-style version of the song with Elvis Costello on vocals was included as a bonus track on the 12-inch single. How did Elvis get into the act? <clears throat> well, we'd recorded, um, we'd had an idea when, when we made the album to record 
a short piece of Tomorrow's Just Another Day with a double bass and a, like a sort of bluesy thing that would fade out echoey and etherally into the rock version, pop version. <laughs> um, but we didn't actually get round to it, so we, we continued with the idea and after we made the album we recorded the track with just a double bass and a uh, piano. I had a go at singing it and couldn't really get, get around it very well. Carl had a, a better go. And I think Christopher walked in. Christopher Foreman. Christopher Foreman, he's got sort of hair problem. But um, he walked in and he said, uh, you know, why don't we get Elvis to sing it? And because we said, Clive had just started working with him, our producer. Mm. That was the main contact. And then um, Clive spoke to Elvis and Elvis said, uh, presumably, yeah. <laughs> and he came down and did it. And it was really good, really yeah. moving, soulful stuff. Did soulful. he show you any of his old Ray Charles albums? He didn't, no, but he enthused about them, if yes. I recall correctly. Yes, yes. He enthused. And then profusely. he sang on the song. Yeah. He did, yeah, it was great. It was good. Did you think it was kosher to have a 12-inch release with someone else singing? Or? Um, very. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it'd be a lot better, I think, if a lot more people sort of, you know, swapped about, interchanged ideas and things. This version was later included as a bonus track on the 2004 two-disc reissue of Costello's Goodbye Cruel World album. The second A-side, Madness Is All In The Mind, features Smash on lead vocals. The double A-side spent nine weeks on the UK singles chart and peaked at number eight. It also charted at number 98 in Australia and two in Ireland. In the US, the band had not had the chart success they enjoyed in Europe. But as luck would have it, John Kalonda, who worked for US label Geffen Records, happened to hear Our House while on a trip to England. Kalonda said, in the fall of 1982, I was over here working with Asia. In fact, I was in the car with Eric Wilson, who was Alan Parsons' manager, and our house came on the radio, and we turned to each other and said, that's a hit, that's a hit song. I mean, that's a hit for anybody. For madness, that'll be a hit in America. It'll be a hit anywhere. Kalonda was right. Our house slowly climbed up the US Billboard charts until it reached number five. A compilation album simply entitled Madness was put together, which contained six tracks from the Rise and Fall album and six UK singles, two of which, Nightboat to Cairo and It Must Be Love, were slightly remixed. The Madness compilation was released in the US in January 1983, where it eventually peaked at number 41 on the Billboard 200 chart and ended up at 93 in the year-end chart. Okay. Rolling Stone's J.D. Considine gave the album a rave review, though still only giving it three and a half stars out of five, saying it introduced the best tracks from Madness's earlier albums to an American audience, while leaving out any songs with insular British cultural references. He praised the uniquely British economy and wit of the melodies and the sobering lyrics, remarking that Madness offers up all of the clichés of traditional British entertainment, but with a twist. 
revealing the hard realities behind the soothing illusions. But I don't care much for the question. Madness is all in the the Rise and Fall tour of the UK started on the 20th of February. Madness was augmented by Dick Cuthel on French horn and a string section comprising Nick Parker, Jonathan Cahan, Sue Rosenfield and Cal Verney. After the tour, Madness filmed the last of their contracted set of adverts for the Honda City car. During their association with Madness, Honda sold a lot of cars, but Madness were perceived almost as the monkeys by some people in Japan who thought they were a pretend band created purely for the adverts. In fact, Madness didn't really relish the idea of going to Japan and insisted that the advert was filmed in England and also that driving in my car was used for the advert's music. On the 5th of May, our house won Best Song at the Ivor Novello Awards, but none of the band turned up to collect the trophy as they were too busy rehearsing. The band's manager, Matthew Sumpf, accepted the award on the band's behalf and declared that they are busy writing next year's winner. Two days later, Madness performed at a CND rally in London's Brockwell Park on a bill with The Damned, Hazel O'Connor and The Style Council. In August, Madness set off to the USA to promote the album, which was their first tour of the US since May of 1981. On a few dates on this US tour, they supported David Bowie, The Police and Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. On the 20th of August, a standalone single, Wings of a Dove, was released, written by Suggs and Smash, and they share lead vocals on the track, which also features steel drums by Crichton Steel Sounds and a gospel choir. In 1985, Madness offered the song as their contribution to the multi-artist compilation Greenpeace The Album. The video for the song depicts all involved in the record, including the steel band and choir, performing in a party atmosphere on board an aeroplane piloted by Smash and co-piloted by Suggs. They all bail out in a small white van after Smash loses control of the plane. The final sequence shows the van parachuting gently down to earth. However, for the sharp-eyed among you, the back of the van the band get into on the plane is a Ford Transit. The van that is dropped from the plane and lands on the ground is an Iveco Daily. The reason for this is because Dave Robinson, founder of Stiff Records as well as the sole director of most of Madness's music videos to this point, had brought the rights to the footage of the parachuting Iveco Daily, which were originally filmed for a French television advert for the van sometime earlier with the intention of including it in a Madness video, and the lyrical content of Wings of a Dove finally gave him the opportunity to use it. Wings of a Dove peaked at number 32 in Belgium, 2 in the UK and number 1 in Ireland. The song enjoyed a brief resurgence in popularity in 1999 when it was featured in the movie 10 Things I Hate About You. 
On the 7th of September, Madness appeared on US TV show Solid Gold, performing It Must Be Love. And on the 18th in New Orleans, they played on board a working steamboat sailing down the Mississippi River. Back in the UK, the band had filmed the video for its next standalone single, and on the 4th of October, while rehearsing and writing material for their next album, they were excited about the possibility of making their own TV series, after being approached by Ben Elton and Richard Curtis, who they had met while appearing on The Young Ones. Barson said to the rest of the band that he wouldn't be able to do this as he wanted to leave the band. He explained he was tired of the music business, and wanted to spend more time with his wife after they had recently relocated to Amsterdam in the Netherlands. He did agree, however, to finish recording the album rather than leave them in the lurch. It's raining again. We were in uh, Halligan's Heat uh, rehearsal rooms, and I said, guys, I'm leaving the band, and there was a sort of shock silence. And, um, yeah, um, and that was it, really, yeah. You know, we didn't, we didn't really, you know, go into too much um, talk in those days about, about things, no. I mean, nobody was happy with the arrangement, except Mike, probably. But he got married to a Dutch girl as well, and he wanted to do other things. And I think he felt that he had enough income and whatever it was, it was time to do it. And he was a very strong, opinionated person. I did try and talk him out of it. On the 29th of October, Madness released the next standalone single, The Sun and the Rain, which was the last song solely written by Barson until 2009, and the last original released by the band to chart inside the UK Top 10 until 1999. The cover image is a detail from the painting The Storm by the French artist Narcisse Virgilio Diaz de la Peña. Painted in 1871, it can be seen in the National Gallery in London. The video shows Madness performing in a rainy street. Towards the end, they are joined by a number of Madness fans who start dancing with the band. An introductory scene shows the band entering Holt's shoe shop in Camden Town, which is no longer there. There are also scenes showing the band dressed in red with umbrella hats, supposedly wreaking havoc inside Suggs's ear, and shots of Thompson running around with a rocket strapped to his back, a reference to the single's B-side, Fireball XL5. The song peaked at number 5 in the UK and number 72 on the US Billboard Hot 100 chart. On the day of its release, the band played it on the Noel Edmonds Late Late Breakfast show. They also performed it on Top of the Pops on the 14th of November, where they played on the same show as ex-Undertone's frontman Fergal Sharkey, who was performing as guest vocalist with The Assembly. Foreman approached Sharky and mentioned a song Smash had been working on that Madness had demoed called Never Listen to Your Father, and asked if Sharky would like to record it with them at some point. Less than a year later, it became Sharky's debut solo single, released in September 1984 on Zajaz Records, which was set up by Madness and was a subdivision of Virgin Records. It charted at number 23 in the UK and 22 in Ireland. It was not typical of the songs he would go on to release as a solo artist, 
but you can hear more about that on the Undertones episode of Band Biographies. During December 1983, Madness went back to Air Studios to record its fifth album. On the 21st of December, Madness played a Christmas party for Greenpeace at the Lyceum Ballroom in London, with all the proceeds going to Greenpeace, with acts including Bonsai Forest, Ian Jury and the Music Students, and Hippie Neil from The Young Ones. This was the last gig Barson would play with Madness for nine years. On the 30th of January, Michael Caine, the lead single from the fifth album, was released. I am Michael Caine. The song was written by Smash and Woodgate and features Smash on lead vocals. I see the from the windows. Despite the fact that the song is called Michael Caine, and that Michael Caine himself recorded the repeated lines especially for the song, it's actually about an IRA informer working for the UK during the Troubles with the lyrics suggesting a state of paranoia and mental disintegration. The connection between the song and the actor is the 1965 film The Ipcress File, in which Kane's character Harry Palmer resists torture and brainwashing techniques used by the bad guys by repeating his name. However, Woodgate was cautious about being too direct with his lyrics, especially after songs like Paul McCartney's much more overt Give Ireland Back to the Irish got no radio airplay and faced vocal criticism, so he used the Michael Caine spy conceit as a veneer. When he was originally approached to appear on the record, Caine turned it down, but when his 10-year-old daughter Natasha found out what he'd done, she made him change his mind, telling him how popular the band was. Caine said to dance producer William Orbit in The Guardian in 2007, my daughter said, you've got to do it, Dad. It's madness. I did it for her. The video for the song is also based on the Ipcris file. It features a Harry Palmer lookalike, as well as a photo of Kane from the 60s being shredded. It was shot on 35mm film, so each shot took far longer to light and set up than the 16mm film that they usually used. Barson appears at the beginning, but had to leave to get a plane back home as it was taking that long to film. Michael Caine spent eight weeks on the UK singles chart and peaked at number 11, but fared better in Ireland reaching number 3. On the 19th of February, Madness went back to the US to appear on TV and radio shows, including Solid Gold, Saturday Night Live and American Bandstand, and play some live dates, with multi-instrumentalist and singer-songwriter Paul Carrick filling in for Barson on keys. Carrick had previously played stints in Roxy Music and Squeeze, among others, in the 70s and 80s. The album Keep Moving was released on the 20th, the title is taken from a repeated phrase from a 1969 British absurdist post-apocalyptic comedy film called The Bed Sitting Room, which starred Dudley Moore, Peter Cook, Spike Milligan and Harry Seacombe among others. The album's cover shows the band sprinting down a running track, 
and was the idea of Stiff Records' Dave Robinson, because he thought it would be a good idea to tie in the artwork to the forthcoming Summer Olympics in LA. The original vinyl album in the US and Canada has a different running order to the UK version, and includes the singles Wings of a Dove and The Sun and the Rain in place of Waltz into Mischief and Time for Tea, although the North American cassette and CD include all 14 tracks. The version of The Sun and the Rain used in the North American album, and which was also issued as a single there, has an edited outro, reducing the length by about 12 seconds. Confusingly for collectors, a vinyl picture disc version using the USA and Canadian track listing was also issued in the UK. Keep Moving received good reviews, with Parker Putterbar of Rolling Stone magazine giving the album 4 out of 5 stars, applauding the band's changing sound. Putterbar wrote, In a sense, Madness have gone back to their roots, the British art pop song as epitomised by the mid-period kinks. They have crafted an eccentric, eclectic collection that comprises frilly flower power pop truffles, rock operatic miniatures about lost faces in the crowd, and quaint slices of British life. Snatches of 60s songs and styles waft through these thoroughly modern tunes like so many friendly ghosts. For instance, the Steve Cropper type guitar fills that toughen up keep moving, and the Peter and Gordon harmonies of the sun and the rain. Not to mention the organ on Prospects, which puts a giddy Caribbean spin on Procol Harum's A Whiter Shade of Pale. Keep Moving is such a delightful musical potpourri that kinks cultists and British invasion curators may soon be wearing God Save Madness buttons. This was a marked improvement from the same magazine's evisceration of absolutely four years previously. The NME ranked Keep Moving at number 13 on its albums of the year list for 1984. Keep Moving charted at number 109 on the US Billboard Hot 200 album chart, 66 in Canada, 47 in Germany, 29 in Sweden, and 6 in the UK. But now everything is on my side, at this time, Island Records were in talks to buy 50% of Stiff Records, and Dave Robinson was running both labels. In fact, Ireland was in trouble, and Robinson had lent it £1 million to fund the share purchase and pay the payroll. Luckily, Ireland had a massive hit with Relax by Frankie Goes to Hollywood, which was released under the ZZT label run by record producer Trevor Horn, his wife and businesswoman Jill Sinclair, and NME journalist Paul Morley. Relax even had a resurgence when the follow-up single Two Tribes was released, which saw Frankie Goes to Hollywood become only the third act in UK chart history at the time to have singles at numbers one and two at the same time, a record held previously only by The Beatles and John Lennon, which might well say something about Liverpudlian musicians. Also in 1984, Stiff signed The Pogues after Robinson saw them open for The Clash on one of their tours, releasing their debut record, Red Roses For Me, that November. Pounds, 
All this distraction was causing tension in the working relationship between Robinson and Madness, and the band decided to look for another label. At the Golden Rose Festival in Montreux on the 11th and 12th of May, where Madness played on a bill including Adamant, Status Quo and Queen, CBS invited Madness to a party held in a hotel suite. Foreman and Thompson had been out drinking with UB40 before the party, and mayhem ensued with someone throwing a chair and an amplifier from the seventh story window, breaking a glass table and putting cigarette burns in the carpet. This was a particular problem, as Rod Stewart was booked in to use the suite the next night. CBS executive Paul Russell coughed up the £1,000 to pay for the damage done, and had a word with the culprits. Sugg said, we only did it for a laugh, none of the band were involved in the furniture destruction. The next day, Madness returned to Britain, and Woodgate had trouble convincing customs officials at Gatwick Airport that he had a giant bar of Toblerone in his bag, and not a gun. On the 2nd of June, the single One Better Day was released. Originally, this single was supposed to be Victoria Gardens, but this was instead used as a B-side on the 12-inch, probably due to avoid releasing two back-to-back -back singles with Smash on lead vocals, because, by Madness's standards, Michael Caine hadn't sold so well, and rumours had begun to swirl about Suggs leaving the band. The other B-side, Guns, was Suggs's first solo writing credit, and meant that all seven members of the group had had at least one solo composition released. Stiff didn't want to produce a video for One Better Day, but the band did, another sign that things weren't rosy between them. So Madness self-funded it, and Barson flew to the UK from Amsterdam for the final time to take part in the recording, as he had played on the song. The video was filmed in London's Arlington Road, just outside the homeless refuge for Arlington House, which is mentioned in the first line of the song. Most of the video shows the band members as homeless people, except a few clips showing them performing the song. It also shows Suggs dancing with his wife, Betty Bright, the vocalist with Deaf School, who plays a homeless woman in the video. One Better Day spent seven weeks on the UK singles chart, peaking at a lowly number 17, and a slightly better eight in Ireland. This was Madness's last single on Stiff Records, and they went their separate ways. Stiff were releasing single after single, there was no gap. So as we finished one single, then another one would be out, so we'd make the video again, and go round and round and round. There's always this thing, and a lot of musicians say, oh, it's, you know, everyone thinks it's so glamorous. But it was, I mean, when you're on a label like Stiff, it was kind of bring your own sandwiches, you know, on tour with you. And, uh, you know, even though we were, were looked after, um, it was, you know, it was pretty kind of, we were, he had to be pretty hardy, really. They weren't keen on touring, didn't like leaving Camden Town for any length of time at all. Didn't like foreign foods, you know. Even when they toured in England, they didn't like to be away for more than 10 days, you know, they had to be back and kind of refill their Camden requirement, whatever it was. It was that old rock and roll attitude of keep them on the road, you know, while, while it's going well, keep them working. 
And we just had this feeling, God, it's three years up the road and we're not seeing our friends, we're not seeing our family, who are we working for? You know, we started out to do this for, to, for ourselves, you know, to enjoy. Being in the band, you know, it was like a 24-hour thing, you know, and, um, you know, I was writing songs. We were touring a lot as well, and, uh, and also the record company, and, like, they really just push you and push you, you know, they want to sort of milk, milk everything out of it that they can. No, I didn't push them at all. I suppose, you know, to a degree, there is a certain time for you, and you grow through that time, particularly you could then. I mean, less nowadays, where there's much more media attention on a band, much quicker. It wasn't like, you know, you could drag Madness screaming anywhere. They wouldn't go. The Stiff and Island Records merger failed, and Robinson gained control of his independent label again in 1985. Hits by the Pogues and Furniture helped Stiff to survive for nearly two more years, but the underlying causes for the failure of the Island deal finally became too burdensome, and Stiff was sold to ZTT in 1987. In 2007, ZTT and its parent company, SPZ Group, reactivated Stiff Records, which then broke indie band The Enemy. It then released a string of new albums by legacy Stiff artists, including Reckless Eric, Henry Priestman, Any Trouble and Chris Difford. New acts signed to the label included The Transmitters and Eskimo Disco. Madness then signed a deal with Virgin Records, which also brought the rights to the whole Madness back catalogue. The band began building its own studio called Liquidator at their new offices on the Caledonian Road, and created its own label, Zarjaz Records, which had a distribution deal with Virgin. Zarjaz is an expression meaning really good in 2000 AD, the home of the Judge Dredd comic strip amongst others, which was essential reading material for some of the members of the band. Zarjaz's first release was Listen to Your Father by Fergal Sharkey the very next month. Also in September and October, Madness began to write and record their next album, as well as filming two 10-minute pilots for their own TV series, which were written by Ben Elton and Richard Curtis. None of the TV networks in Britain were interested, and this is where the dream of a Madness TV series finally died. In December, a Madness fan called Mick Tui walked into Liquidator Studios and suggested that the band record the 1970 reggae song Starvation by the Pioneers in aid of the Ethiopian famine appeal. Madness agreed it was an excellent opportunity, especially as they were playing at a private party that week with Bananarama, Orange Juice and Aztec Camera, and DJ sets by Paul Weller and Jerry Dammers, where all profits were going to the Ethiopian famine appeal. It was also a way to do a more genuine charity single than Band-Aid which had just been released and had rocketed to number one in its first week, outselling all the other singles on the chart combined. However, the Band-Aid project was criticised by some for featuring very few black musicians and none at all from Africa. 
1985 Time Out interview, Morrissey, who was not invited to participate in Band-Aid, gave his view about the song. I'm not afraid to say I think Band-Aid was diabolical, or to say that I think Bob Geldof is a nauseating character. Many people find that very unsettling, but I'll say it as loud as anyone wants me to. In the first instance, the record itself was absolutely tuneless. One can have great concern for the people of Ethiopia, but it's another thing to inflict daily torture on the people of Great Britain. It was an awful record considering the mass of talent involved, and it wasn't done shyly. It was the most self-righteous platform ever in the history of popular music. In 1986, the anarchist band Chumbawamba released the album Pictures of Starving Children Sell Records, as well as an EP entitled We Are The World, jointly recorded with US band A State Of Mind, both of which were intended as anti-capitalist critiques of the Band-Aid and Live-Aid phenomenon. They argued that the record was primarily a cosmetic spectacle, designed to draw attention away from the real political causes of world hunger. Madness invited the pioneers themselves, as well as members of two-tone groups The Specials and The Beat, UB40 and Aphrodisiac, a British singing group made up of Karen Wheeler, Claudia Fontaine and Naomi Thompson, who had provided backing vocals for the jams Beat Surrender, Special AKA's Free Nelson Mandela and Nigerian drummer Gaspar Lowell. A multi-language version of the song, Tam Tam Pour l'Ethiopie, was recorded in Paris and featured an ensemble of African artists. Many of these musicians were from French-speaking countries, but the lyrics were sung in a number of African languages, including Douala, Lingala, Wolof, Malinke and Swahili. It was produced by Cameroonian jazz, funk and traditional musician and songwriter Manu Dibango. The record was released on Zarjaz in March 1985 and reached number 33 in the UK charts, marking the only time that a record to raise money for Africa actually featuring African artists has entered the UK Top 40. The 12-inch version of the single featured a different mix of starvation and a much longer two-part version of Tam Tam Pour L'Ethiopie, as well as an exclusive track called Haunted, which was written and produced by Dick Cuthall and performed by him and Aphrodisiac. Proceeds from the record were distributed to the charities Oxfam, War on Want and Médecins Sans Frontières. In the same month, a strange electro single called Mutants in Mega City One by an act called the Fink Brothers was released. The Fink Brothers, otherwise known as Angel and Ratty Fink, 
were actually the short-lived alter egos of Suggs and Smash. The song is based on Judge Dredd and his enemies the Fink Brothers. The two songs on this single remain the only material ever released by the Fink Brothers. In March, Madness went into Air Studios again to begin recording their sixth studio album, but the first on their own label, and the first without founding member Mike Barson. In April, Madness moved to Westside Studios, owned by production team Langer and Win Stanley, to continue recording throughout the month. On the 19th of August, Madness released the first single from the album, Yesterday's Men, independently. Upon release, Paul Bursch of Number One magazine called it a grim portrait of a land without hope, a real grower this that finally emerges into one of the best songs the group has ever done. Very Sade-ish, but even the orchestration can't disguise a new lush madness sound. Ian Craner of Smash Hits wrote, This mournful little exhortation to hang on in there with gentle percussion and varied instrumental weaving must be quite satisfying to record after being so nutty for so long but it's hardly soul-stirring stuff. The song was ranked number seven among the tracks of the year for 1985 by the NME. In a retrospective review of the album, Daryl Carter of AllMusic described the song as dwelling on themes of transience and ageing. Terry Staunton of Record Collector noted the wacky humour of old, already on the wane in their previous outing, Keep Moving was almost totally eclipsed by sombre tones of resignation, best exemplified on the single Yesterday's Men. During the rest of August, Madness appeared on numerous TV shows in the UK, Germany and the Netherlands, including Wogan, Top of the Pops, Cheggers Plays Pop, No Limits and TVAM to promote the single and the upcoming album. Yesterday's Men charted in more countries than any other single since Our House, but only reached number 54 in Austria, 41 in the Netherlands, 38 in New Zealand, 28 in Belgium, 18 in the UK, and 7 in Ireland. We've moved into a new direction now. We're messing around with frequency. We're recording in all wood studios now. Before, it's always been concrete base studio floors. And uh, we found that sound doesn't really permeate. Well, no, it just doesn't happen as it's we would like it to happen. You need. So anyway, it's all wooden floors and natural pine. And <coughs> it's much better than finding out whether... Do you feel that the group is making <laughs> progress in musical terms, or does it matter? Um, I think it matters, and I think we are. Um, I suppose the ex experience that we've gained is, is from how to make it more interesting, you know, with harmonies and backing vocals and such like. But um, definitely becoming different. We've talked about doing something 
slightly more jolly. in the dance pool, yes. We're going to jolly things up a bit, I think. On the 30th of September, the album Mad Not Mad was released, their sixth studio album and the first on their own Zarjaz label under Virgin Records. On the album, the band expressed both their feelings and private problems, as well as addressing political issues, such as on Burning the Boats. It also features the satirical track I'll Compete, which acknowledges their declining popularity and sales with the lyrics Let us hurry now, time is catching up and also exaggerates on them maturing with the line, I'm five years closer to my pension scheme. Mad Not Mad features prolific guest backing vocalists, including the female trio Aphrodisiac, and US soul singer with London beat Jimmy Helms. Mad Not Mad was met with mixed responses. Radio stations criticised it for its over-reliance on slow, dark and downbeat songs, but the album was received favourably by music critics. Within weeks of its release, the NME ranked Mad Not Mad at number 55 on its list of the 100 best albums of all time. Smash Hits' William White gave it a rating of 7 out of 10, and the record mirror's Roger Morton gave it 4 stars out of 5. The NME's view of the album is still favourable as of 2015, including it in that year's lists of 50 albums released in 1985 that still sound great today. However, opinions have changed over the past few decades. For example, Rolling Stone gave the album two stars out of five in its 2004 album guide, and Daryl Carter wrote in his two and a half star out of five review on all music that the band was clearly not in the best of moods while they recorded it. Like the Beatles' Let It Be, this record has one last stab written all over it. The album opens with a bitingly overt declaration of the band's determination to hang on in the cynically mercurial music business with I'll Compete, and concludes with one of many images of an inevitably approaching ending shivering to a halt, no one wants to speak too soon, although we all knew. Several songs dwell on themes of transience and ageing, time and yesterday's men, and the title track openly broods over the sting of Barson's departure. The album almost seems to foretell its own lack of success. Its ultimate failure to reignite the group's popularity might be blamed on the slickly synthetic overproduction. Clive Langer and Alan Winstanley occasionally strike an inspired balance between soulful pop and subtle reggae rhythms, but more often they replace the warmth of Barson's pianos with a cold emphasis on drum machines and synthesizers. Some of the songwriting, however, is on par with the band's most mature work, and the lively melodies lend a perfect irony to the band's wry social commentary and personal brooding. Tying in with the darker themes on the album, the cover image is taken by renowned rock photographer Anton Corbin and is a typically moody monochrome shot of the band's heads, all of them wearing black. In later years, the band themselves have been quite vocal that they were less than satisfied with the album. In a BBC Radio 1 interview in 1993, Suggs described the album as a polished turd, referring to its distinctively glossy mid-1980s production. In a 2009 interview with Record Collector magazine, 
Suggs said that with keyboardist Mike Barson gone, they slightly overcompensated arrangement-wise and musician-wise, but there were some great songs on that album for sure. The album reached number 66 in Austria, 42 in Sweden and 16 in the UK charts, which was the band's lowest album position in the UK to date. On the 14th of October, the single Uncle Sam was released. Written by Thompson and Foreman, the song's lyrics tell the story of a soldier's experience in World War II. The track was edited for release as a single, the album version being over a minute longer. The video can be viewed as a parody of US participation in the Second World War. As a deluxe offering, the single was also issued in a flag bag where the 7-inch was wrapped in an American flag upon which Uncle Sam was printed in Russian. In his review of the single in the record Mirror, Roger Morton said, Displaying a healthy glaze of scar tissue rhythm, Madness set sail against Rambo Land, armed with a deceptively chirpy tune and a camouflage lyric. The single charted at number 17 in Ireland, but only 21 in the UK, their first single to chart outside the UK Top 20 in their entire career. Coincidentally, it was also the band's 21st single. On the 22nd of October, Madness headed out on tour to promote Mad Not Mad, their first tour since 1983. In order to play the new songs properly, they brought along a trio of backing singers and an additional percussionist. When I thought of some of your early live shows, when you would be dancing all over the stage as Chaz Smash, people would be dressing up as camels and so forth, uh, the presentation would have to be altered somehow to accommodate this new album, and, and it has evolved, hasn't it? How's it changed? We've got a lot of new sounds, yeah. People have to do more work musically which means I can't do as much visually. So I think on the last tour that we did, we had string players yeah, and the brass band. We were trying to make the stage itself more interesting, as mm. opposed to you trying to think of different right. things because to do you, ourselves. Because yes. you yourselves can't be the nutty boys that you used to be. Um, we, well, we still can, I think, yeah. but it's just a, um, We're just a bit more restricted by it. But yes. no, we've knowingly restricted ourselves, I think. Yeah. We knowingly did. Mm -hmm. But uh, with incorporating the things, and then incorporating the brass and, and the extra trumpet, it was really, you know, it gave the yeah. audience a lot more to see. Thompson also brought along a trampoline, which caused one of the road crew to write, what is this, a circus, in glitter paint on the dressing room wall at the opening show in Chippenham. During the tour, which lasted all the way through to the end of November, the band made appearances on top of the Pops and the Old Grey Whistle Test, as well as Suggs, Smash and Thompson modelling at the Rag Aid fashion show at the Royal Albert Hall, which was raising money for the Ethiopian Famine Appeal. In December, Madness played a one-off show in Helsinki, Finland, and visited the Finnish Embassy on the country's Independence Day. Back in the UK on the 21st, they played at Hyde Park in London at a Christmas party for the unemployed, sharing the stage with Billy Bragg, Lorna G., Mark Almond, and the Willing Sinners and the Frank Chickens. Ian Jury joined Madness on stage for a couple of songs. They also played shows on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day at the Hammersmith Odeon. On the Christmas Eve date, the audience was encouraged to bring along toys to donate to children's charities.
In January 1986, Madness joined the Red Wedge tour with Billy Bragg, Lorna G, Stephen Duffy, The Communards, The Style Council, Junior, Tom Robinson, Lloyd Cole, and The Commotions and DC Lee. The Red Wedge was a collective of musicians formed in the UK in 1985 by Billy Bragg, Paul Weller, previously of The Jam and now The Style Council, and Jimmy Somerville of The Communards. Its aim was to attempt to create political awareness among young people, especially about the policies of the Labour Party, leading up to the 1987 general election, in the hope of ousting the Conservative government of Margaret Thatcher. The collective took its name from a 1919 poster by Russian constructivist artist El Lizitsky, titled Beat the Whites with the Red Wedge. Despite this echo of the Russian Civil War, Red Wedge was not a communist organisation, nor was it an official arm of the Labour Party, but it did initially occupy office space at Labour's headquarters. The group's logo, also inspired by the Lizitsky poster, was designed by Neville Brody, who worked as a graphic designer on The Face and Arena magazines, and had designed record covers for artists such as Clock DVA, Cabaret Voltaire, The Bongos, 23 Skidoo, and Depeche Mode. His work is included in the permanent collection of the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. Each concert on the tour was preceded by an open conversation about politics. Madness performed its 20-minute set as a three-piece comprising Suggs, Bedford and one of their keyboard players backed by a drum machine as Thompson was on a holiday and Woodgate didn't want to do the tour. On the 10th of February, the final single from Mad Not Mad was released, a cover of The Sweetest Girl by Squitty Politi, which had originally been released by them in 1981 and reached number 64 in the UK. Madness changed the name of the song to Sweetest Girl when they released it. This version fared better than Squitty Politi's, but only just. For Madness, a number 35 in the UK and 29 in Ireland was a failure. In April, Madness set off on tour, starting with a few warm-up shows in France before setting off to Australia, touring throughout April and May, and ending up in the US. On this tour, the band was playing smaller venues than it had done in the past, especially in Australia. In June, they played a number of festivals including Glastonbury, Park Pop in Holland, and finishing at the Rockskilder Festival in Denmark. Madness then started a period of rehearsing and writing in their Liquidator studio with a view to making a new album. Around 11 tracks were demoed, but things weren't going well, and the age-old chestnut of musical differences was beginning to surface between the band members. Woodgate remembers, Bedders, myself and the keyboard player were working really hard concentrating on the songs. We'd get together what we thought would be the right rhythm section or the right feel or beat, and one by one the rest of the band would come in 
and it was like a Harry Enfield thing. You don't want to do it like this, you want to do it like that. We'd worked so hard and it was just this constant battle. We found ourselves being left more and more alone and eventually we got summoned upstairs and there was a meeting and it was like the rest of them had all sat down together and allegedly said we'd had enough, let's call it a day. Mark and I, we knew this was coming because it wasn't fun anymore. It just wasn't fun and it wasn't happening. It's kind of sad really because we knew what they needed to do. The four of them needed to go off and do their own thing. Suggs added, we'd all just got slightly different ideas then about what we should do. Chris, I think, and Lee maybe just wanted to get on with it and just get in the studio because we had a studio which we didn't use half enough and just do some recording. Carl had different ideas every day about either getting a band and playing it or doing it with machines or not doing it. I wasn't sure myself what we should do. I didn't have a clear enough idea where we were going. I didn't feel strong enough to lead in any direction and I didn't feel like I wanted to go in the direction that everyone else who was in the band wanted to go in. So that was it. The untitled album went unreleased and in September 1986, the band issued a press release announcing they were to split. They also dissolved their record label Zarjaz. As one final parting gift to the fans, Madness released a single called Waiting for the Ghost Train. Barson rejoined the band to record this song, although he did not appear in the video. The song was written by Suggs about apartheid in South Africa, with its chorus, it's black and white, don't try to hide it, and the line the station master's writing with a piece of orange chalk, 100 cancellations, still no one wants to walk, in reference to the South African flag. Upon its release, Anna Martin of Number One magazine stated, Reminiscent of the classic sound of Grey Day and the Sun and the Rain, the chorus follows in the great tradition of sing-along ability and ends in a big sweeping crescendo that signals the end. Simon Mills of Smash Hits related the song to the band's recent material of that time. Their farewell single is more of the same doomy stuff about an unfortunate bunch of folk who are all waiting for this train that never comes. Life's like that, isn't it? The single peaked at number 18 in the UK and 9 in Ireland. A Christmas flexi-disc record containing the band demo of the song was sent out to Madness fan club members, featuring farewells and thanks from each member of the band, except Barson. A month later, Madness released a second greatest hits album, Utter Madness, which picks up from where Complete Madness left off, running from Driving In My Car, the first single after Complete Madness's release, to Waiting For The Ghost Train. Utter Madness includes a couple of album tracks that were never released as singles, namely I'll Compete and Victoria Gardens. Buster, he sold the, heat. the almost nine minute track Seven Year Scratch was only available on the CD version of the album as a bonus track. It's a remix featuring numerous Madness songs. Although this track features on other Madness compilations in edited forms, this full-length mix is only available on Utter Madness. 
Utter Madness received almost universal acclaim from critics. Melody makers Will Smith said, suffice to say, they leave a whole heap of fond memories in a mammoth void. They were a national bloody asset and they spoilt us rotten. Madness. Yesterday's men, tomorrow's inspiration. The record mirrors Jane Wilkes added in her 5 out of 5 star review that Utter is a far more concise and accurate reflection of their career, encompassing all their elements, the humour, the sadness and the cynicism. In Sounds Magazine's 5 out of 5 review, John Barron said that while the front cover depicted the band in their nutty train formation, each member was also wearing newspaper print suits, with the headline Soweto Bloodbath prominently displayed, claiming that this demonstrated that to the end, the group were masters of mixing humour with serious social comment. Utter madness is ample proof that their heavy heavy monster sound didn't so much dilute over the years as progress. Their particular genius lay in their ability to project their vision of our life and times in Britain through that normally most banal of mediums, pop music. Despite this universal praise, the album only charted at number 29 in the UK and 24 in New Zealand. And that was the end of Madness. A very broad spectrum of people liked them for all kinds of different reasons. You had young kids who loved the dances, and you had older people who kind of, you know, liked some of the kind of music hall elements of, you know, there's always a kind of a music hall organ or a kind of, their music was very broad. It kind of, you know, it eventually encapsulated quite a lot of English music, you know. It was kind of a very broad, very interesting period. You know, I had a really good time with it. And obviously we sold an awful lot of records, which is always good. Join me next time to find out what each of the members did next and how Madness got back together. for listening to this episode of Band Biographies. If you enjoyed it, please don't forget to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you use to listen to your podcasts. Please do reach out on Twitter at BandBiogs, Instagram at Band Biographies, search on Facebook for Band Biographies or by emailing bandbiographies at gmail.com. See you next time. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
and why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.